0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Trinity Rep, celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years, March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com.
1: This is BPR. Today's Trump headlines features a postponed summit with Putin, Trump banning a CNN reporter from the Rose Garden, and Trump's star on the Walk of Fame being vandalized again. But where's the coverage of his administration scrambling to meet today's deadline to reunite hundreds of immigrant kids with their parents? We asked Chuck Todd about our flagging interest in the immigration crisis. Then we opened the lines and asked you Has compassion fatigue already set in? And if you don't got lacteal secretion, then you don't got milk. The FDA is cowing to the milk industry, cracking down on alternatives like almond and soy milk for calling themselves milk. Food writer Corby Comer joins us for that and more.
0: At noon, former Suffolk County Sheriff Andrew Cabral joins us for another edition of Law & Order. Then it's Harvard Business School's Nancy Kane on why it's the end of the line for Ivanka Trump's fashion line. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Jim I am Marjorie and You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim.
1: Hey there, Marjorie. So yesterday, Chuck Todd tweeted, one can take a nine-day vacation. And in that nine days, everything seemed to happen while little changed." Well, let's recap what exactly did happen in those nine days. Putin-Trump-Helsinki summit. Trump challenges U.S. intelligence on Russia election meddling. Then he supports it. Then he calls it a hoax. Trump invites Putin to the U.S. Michael Cohen releases tapes of Trump talking hush money. Trump provokes Iran on Twitter. Trump threatens to pull his critics' security clearance. And most consequential for a few hours, Orrin Hatch was dead, thanks to an erroneous entry in his Wikipedia page. Chuck Todd, we missed your take on all the above. Chuck is the moderator of Meet I, the Press, which you can catch Sunday <laughs> mornings. Let me pre- give you a little play here at 1030 on NBC Boston. He's I appreciate also, that. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and political director for NBC News. As you were saying, Chuck Todd? I didn't
2: know about the one hatch thing. That was the, you actually gave me something that I totally missed. <laughs> Lord Hatch died and was revitalized? Apparently. He was reanimated? He was. (laughs) He was. I missed that one. Yeah, that was our brilliant
0: producer. She saw it. I didn't see it either. But but Chuck, I wanted to add one thing because it's at the top of your uh, uh, website at MSNBC. Uh, Today is reunification uh, day when the children and their parents are supposed to be reunited, that were separated at the border. And you've got a story about mothers pleading for their children and heard pleading for their children. Uh, at an immigration detention center, 2,551 migrant children are, so, are still separated.
2: Look, I think what we're going to find out once we get all the information, once all the Freedom of Information Act requests finally go through, I think we're going to find out that the administration never bothered to, to track who these people were. because They never thought they were going to be doing that. And that's why this has taken so long. I genuinely believe that the the, the, the the government workers on the ground now are doing their best, but I think we're going to find out at the very beginning nobody even thought about this, and there was no order in doing it, and that's what's made this so difficult. You mean? I think they claim otherwise, but I have a feeling we're going to find – there's no way – given how under the gun they are on this, I think the reason they're struggling is because they just don't have the information because they didn't bother – doing this at the beginning
0: you mean to say that they just didn't care about parents I don't know being I don't know if it
2: didn't care or whatever it was I don't want to go there I'm not going into motives I'm just saying that I fear we're going to find out that that happened whether it was inadvertent or just or just overlooked or nobody thought about it and just moved people around or it wasn't prioritized, whatever you want to – I just have a feeling once we find everything out, and it's not from what the government tells us, it's from what they're, we finally get sort of forced – and we probably won't find out for two years. Um, but, but we're going to find out at the beginning here, something went wrong, intentionally or unintentionally, that has made this process nearly impossible.
1: Can I go into motive then, uh, for just a second? Based on you guys can go into motive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but but based on pretty strong circumstantial (laughs) evidence, if your concern was reunification, not yours but the government's, why would they have rushed to deport? uh, We're told four hundred, I think, in sixty-three parents.
2: Why are you assuming there was? You you just made you you. I don't accept the premise that reunification was their
1: priority. I see. Okay
2: right like i don't think it was that's the point Mm -hmm. i think at the very beginning they never thought they were going to be reunifying i don't think they ever thought about it now whether you want to say that was with malicious intent or benevolent intent or uh, you know or sort of benevolent um idiocy right like not thinking about something as simple as that whatever you want to do i that's why i'm saying i don't want to get into motive yet but there may be motive somewhere on somebody's part I mean, look, Stephen Miller's been unabashed about this. Mm-hmm. He absolutely advocated the policy and believed it would be deterrent. Boy, if people think they're going to lose their kids, they won't come.
1: Well, you know, my sense... So
2: it, you tell me, right? Like, I have a like, what well, My point is that they're struggling to meet this deadline because they don't have the information. Why don't they have the information? Someone told them not to collect it.
1: Well, except, you know, I, again, this is speculation on my part. My hopes were on Orrin Hatch, and had he not passed away, my sense is <laughs> it's all... It's all- could have but been
2: different. Warren to stop this. <laughs> I
1: think the so. The three hours that he died, <laughs> the
2: three hours that he was not animated, and he got reanimated. You know, let's
0: get to one more question about this, because Jim thinks that this is going to be uh, old news and pretty much It forgotten. is old news, sadly. Uh, it's leading – It's th- already old.
2: Whatever – Whatever it is, it's already old news these days. <laughs> but
0: my question to you, longtime newsman and journalist, it's a, it, this story is at the top of your website. Uh, it's not on the top on, on everybody else's front page. No. Are we going to forget about this, or is this going to keep uh, happening, especially when you have more audio of distraught mothers?
2: Well, I think it's a combination of uh, – there is a season to this emigration, right? It is in this – in the summer or, you know, late spring, early summer months that, that it comes, you know, that this becomes an issue. This has been tracked over the last five or six years that we've had the. So if you're asking me, when is it going to get back onto the front pages? Probably not till next spring. Um, and, 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 and when we get these, when we find out what truly, what orders were given at the beginning when it came to, do, to splitting up families. Okay. And we don't know that we don't know that. And, and so, I do think it is fading for now, but it will come back up as this issue comes back.
1: You know, we're talking to Chuck Todd. uh, Chuck, by my count, it's day 10 since Helsinki. The American people have absolutely no idea what the two presidents discussed in that closed-door meeting. And based on the snippets of the testimony that I saw last night from the Secretary of State before a Senate committee, Mm -hmm. it's not clear to me he has any idea what happened in that meeting either. Is that an unfair statement?
2: No, I mean, he would – I don't think so. He would He would argue he has – that he believes he knows more about what happened in that meeting than anybody else. Man, that could be true, okay? <laughs> um, that, that may be true, that that he may know more than anybody other than Trump on that. Um, but that doesn't mean he knows everything that took place in that meeting. Look, I thought the – that hearing yesterday was um, – I thought a pretty unreassuring hearing by Pompeo. I don't think he made anybody feel better. Um, Republican or Democrat, he was facing tough questions. And, and I think he, all he seemed to care about was an audience of one.
0: Exactly. He couldn't
2: even take a compliment from Jeff Blake about yeah. his State Department. He said, oh, no, it's President Trump's State Department. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God, what is this? And it's, so it was clear that Pompeo was never going to be forthcoming. When he did that, right, when he corrected a compliment, no, 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 it must go to the president. That should have told us right there, we're not going to learn anything. He, he now realizes there's an audience of one.
0: But, you know, as smart as everyone says Pompeo is and, uh, and he's been a politician for a long time, it was kind of a disastrous day for him, I think, if anybody was paying attention to it, uh, because he was stumbling and bumbling and belligerent. and Fighting
1: uh, with the Republicans?
0: Yes. And it just yes, – Because it, I think he – because they all know he knows better. Yeah. I really
2: believe it. This is a man first in his class at West Point. Okay, this is this is, you know, his credentials uh, as an American patriot are in some ways are impeccable. Um, His interest in knowledge, you may not agree with some of his ideological ideas when it comes to to, to international affairs, but 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 his knowledge of it is as top notch as any. I mean, this is this is a highly qualified, highly functioning um, diplomat for the United States of America. And, it, and 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 all those, and he served in Congress. And they all know this is this is you know he's not like some House former House Republicans like a Jim Jordan. Right. You know it's the best job they've ever had. This is a guy who would have been successful in it. So they know he knows better. That's why it was so tough on him. And you know what? You know why he struggled? Because he knows he knows better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, if you are struggling with your answers, it's because you know you're uncomfortable with the ones with the answers you're giving. Because guess what? It all goes back to what I said at the beginning. He knew he had an audience of one.
0: Yeah, you wonder what the audience of one thought. I mean, it, it must have been difficult even for the president to see that level of unconsciousness. But anyway, I should move Why on. Why do you think
2: they decided to have a trade? Why do you think they suddenly decided to have a trade uh, a, a trade non-announcement on the <laughs> Rose <race> Garden? Oh. <laughs> That's a great thought. That's Four o'clock yesterday <laughs> afternoon? Yeah. Right in the middle of the hearing? Huh. Yeah. And is there now a cable news former cable news executive producer who's now the executive producer of the White House?
0: That's right. Oh, Yeah. That's right. That's right. No. That's a, <laughs> this of course would be Bill Shine, who lost his job at Fox yep. News for being involved in in uh, uh, cover-ups allegedly of sex harassment cases and other things. Anyway, you know, I I think we've said this, or I've said this for the twentieth time now. So I'll, but say, I'll say it, it again. once again. You know, in most presidencies, if uh, you've been, if the president of the United States had been overheard on tape talking about a hush fund for the former, for a former a uh, Playboy centerfold with whom he had an a affair, she says. I mean, this is all we'd be talking about, but once again, it seems like a worst-case scenario campaign finance uh, situation, and is it done? Is that done too?
2: You know, isn't it an amazing trick in less than two years, how much of a carcass, I've been, I was thinking about this yesterday and had an interesting conversation with a group of people, how dead of a carcass was, I think the Republican Party was deader than, than, than anybody thought. When Donald Trump took it over, because in less than two years, he's gotten the, the Republican Party that we've gotten to know. He's gotten them to um, look the other way in adultery um, with evangelicals. He's gotten a, a party of free trade capitalists to suddenly say, eh, let's all right, let's come up with a taxpayer bailout. Um, he's got them to instead of tear down this wall, sucking up to Putin. I mean, it is an amazing two year flip. I mean, I, I'm with you, but it's not just on Michael Cohen. I mean, the president has upended decades of Republican and conservative orthodoxy, and he has bended all of them to their will, to his will. It's unbelievable, and he's done it in less than two years.
0: Do you worry? Hey, you know, I'm sure. about that. It is incredible, and is it is it his and it's his skill, I guess, combined with his well, uh, tremendous fear. popularity. It's fear.
2: That's right. These folks fear. What they don't realize is. The base of the Republic of Donald Trump's base is, la- is basically has never respected and never believed what conventional Republicans have been telling them for 20 years. Because if they did, Donald Trump wouldn't be president.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what they also don't believe? I you left see out the pol-
2: deficits as far- By the way, I, I left out deficits. $1 trillion,
1: as as- right. Hey, but you know what you left out about Republicans? Did you see the thing in the Washington Post? Three quarters of Republicans trust Trump. Over uh, what we all do for a living, over the media, that's a pretty scary thing. It seems to me.
2: It's you know I do like to try to separate Republicans from Trump because there's Trump supporters and then there's the rest of the Republicans and there are still two there are two distinct groups of Republicans. One is just enormous, much larger than the other.
1: You know, one last thing about the uh, Cohen thing, just stepping back from... I learned a term in the last 24 hours, you may have known, Chuck, and you, Marjorie, cognitive load. And what psychologists say is when you were lied to repeatedly, uh, either in your personal life and your life as a citizen of this country, your brain gets so overworked that you don't even know how to process the lies anymore. When you step back from the rush of the day Chuck Todd, do you worry about how the relentless lying out of the White House, a word we did not use early on, I should say, the relentless lying may be mm-hmm. changing this country for a long period of time?
2: I do worry about it. I mean, I worry about it. Look, I, I, I worry about it in multiple ways. You know, I think that, so for instance, let's just take the, the Russia thing. I, I think what, what Russia did and what happened is the... Is, is the worst act against the American democracy um, since uh, since the British burned down the White House. Okay, I mean I, it is that kind of I think serious action that took place. And every time Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels and Playboy Bunny entered the picture, I, I I almost I sit there and go, oh no. And this is all, but now now it's going to make it easier for Trump to just make everybody think this is all just nothing but you know, they get Trump Oh, they can't get him on Russia, they get him on sex or they get him on this. And it's like, you know, so I worry about not just the constant lying that has totally um, perverted what facts are for a big chunk of Americans. And remember who this, 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 that to me, that's the legacy of Roger Ailes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let, that's Roger Ailes and this entity that he created um, um, uh, in Fox. That's his, like, that's what, that's what he helped accelerate here. And so he elected his first president in, in Trump, and he's got it there. So there's definitely that. But I worry both about not just the overload and constantly being lied to where you're just so disoriented that you decide, ah, it's like, it's like the Middle East. You know, you ask any reporter that spends time in the Middle East, and they'll just tell you, because um, everybody lies all, all the time, that nobody knows what the truth is. Mm-hmm. And that nobody ever knows what's real or what isn't in the Middle East. Middle East politics are, are always rumor and innuendo and rumor and innuendo, and they're never fact-based. The stuff out there is never very fact-based. That's my concern, that that we're, we're, where we're headed toward is that literally we will go back to the 19th century in this country, where you'll have Republican newspapers, Democratic newspapers, um, you know, an occasional independent newspaper here or there. But I, I guess that's where, where we're headed. Look, we survived the 19th century, so maybe we can survive a 21st century that goes in that direction, but um, it's not fun. Um, and by the way, the 19th century was interrupted by something called the Civil War. But other than that, it was great.
0: <laughs> On that well, upbeat note. I'm, yeah, I'm glad you, have, you I get cheered up. You
3: know, I'm not <laughs> Jonathan Swift. I knew my best Jonathan Swift. How'd I do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was very good. Chuck, is great He's to talk to you. We'll talk about the children next Thank you very much, Chuck Todd. Very much appreciate it.
2: <laughs> well, we got to save the planet somehow. Okay.
0: <laughs> exactly. Bye. Chuck you Todd too. joins us every week. I'm glad you're back, Chuck. He's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 10.30 on NBC Boston, Channel 10 on Most Providers. here. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily, which airs every day on MSNBC at 5 o'clock here. That's Channel 37 on Most Providers around here. And he's the political director of NBC News. Thanks so much for joining us up next we're opening the lines and asking you when it comes to the immigration crisis have you reached compassion fatigue or worse have you given up that nothing you do will change the situation that conversation is next on 897 wgbh boston public radio
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we were talking to Chuck Todd about how the immigration crisis and the ongoing horror show of parents being separated from their kids and the government's half-hearted attempt to reunite them has fallen off our radar. Today, as we said, is Family Reunification Day. My guess is the more people know that it's National Coffee Milkshake Day. <laughs> Today's court-ordered deadline for the Trump administration to reunite hundreds of immigrant kids with their parents Was established last month after public outrage erupted over the White House's zero tolerance immigration policy. But where is the outrage now? Only a couple of weeks ago, the urgency of the situation was nearly palpable. Remember after ProPublica released this audio tape of a young girl sobbing at the Texas border? Yeah, I'm not happy about this, but I was totally right. Where is the outrage now? Have we reached compassion fatigue? Have we given up? It is just easier in the middle of summer to turn off and drop out. 877-301-897. I did say this. And by the way, I know you care about I know I care about it. I bet if we interviewed 100 Americans, 100 of them would say they care about it. What's the evidence that we haven't moved on exactly as I said to you we would three weeks ago? Because
0: I think people are still worried about it. I mean, you're sitting home in your living room, what are you supposed to do? Call up a, the pollster and tell them you're really worried? I think Chuck Todd said we're not going to know exactly what's happening. Till spring. Well, he said we won't
1: refocus of... till spring. Well...
0: I just I just don't buy it. I think this maybe is more, I hate to be sexist about it, this is probably more a, a w- woman's issue, a mother issue. I mm. just can't even imagine this could happen to you. And I think people are still thinking about it. And the fact that it was not on the front page of the New York Times today, which I wish it had been, uh-huh. and only slightly mentioned the Washington Post. It did yeah. leave the website at MSNBC. I have not checked out every news outlet in America to see who else is is focusing on this. But I just I just think it is a recurring low-level upset that people yeah, feel Yeah, low-level kids
1: separated from their parents, hundreds of whom will never be reunited with their parents. We were outraged again. at a crescendo, and again, sadly, I was right. It is a back-burner kind of issue for this country because we have the attention span of a gnat. And by the way, it is not just Donald Trump's fault. And in terms of these newspapers you mentioned, I think you'd acknowledge as a woman who spent her career in the newspaper business, they give you what you want. If we were demanding information on this, it would be on the front page on Reunification Day, but it's Pogo-esque. We have seen the enemy, and I think in this case well, it is us. I,
0: I still disagree with you. I think that as these children are not reunited, as we read more stories about children under five, that the, the Trump administration can't find their parents. They've only the done half of the kids under five, them. I think. I know. that that, that I think that, that they will... And, and by the way, the Congress people are being forbidden to even go into these places. Uh, They're giving out almost no information. It's really impossible uh, to, to know what's going on. Which
1: should outrage us more, shouldn't it?
0: Yeah, it should outrage. It should outrage How's us more. How's that going? Well, again, Jim, this is like everything else. We've had a very busy week, you know, with Helsinki and with uh, Secretary Pompeo up there yesterday, stumbling around when he's asked about what he knows about what the president said to Vladimir Putin. We have this tape now. We learn we have not just the one Michael Cohen tape that we heard about. But apparently we have another hundred uh, tapes That's from Michael Cohen. That's what CNN Cohen, says. CNN is reporting So there's a steady. It's been kind of the the, the, the hallmark of this administration. I would argue. It's like one thing after I another. I would after argue, another.
1: and then we'll get to your calls. The single cruelest thing, and it is really hard to mm-hmm. rate them, that has been done in the 18 months of this yep. administration is not just separating kids from their parents, but then if Chuck Todd is right, showing virtually no concern to reunite them with their parents and one of the reasons they're going to get away with this is because sadly I think at least we have moved on. 877 301 I'm Here's sorry. Here's an idea
0: from one of our uh, listeners. Erica says, like Ted Koppel during the genesis of ABC's Nightline, counting the days of the Iran I agree. hostage crisis, I agree. the networks, or maybe right here at Boston Public Radio, uh, should end their evening news broadcast with X number of days since the reunification target date, X number of children still separated from their families. It's so that a great Ted idea. It's late for Ted think? No. She's talking about oh. right. people can do it right now.
1: Okay. You and Am- I could do it right now. Let's do it. I'm ready. Amanda in a car, your first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome.
4: Hey, so first of all, I love your show. Thanks. Um, so I am vice president of a nonprofit in Guatemala called Ready Village, and mm-hmm. I'm actually literally on my way to Guatemala today. Mm. And I just want to tell you that my outrage is still fresh and I am still fired up. Um, I work with the very people who probably one day will attempt to come over the border because the conditions that they live in are. Are insane. You know, you can't fault them for wanting to seek a better life. Like every everywhere they turn to try and make their lives better is just there's there's nothing.
1: But Amanda, you know? you, you do um, this is your work. Uh, it, how about your neighbors who don't do this uh, as their primary anyway, focus?
4: Through through working with this nonprofit, I've I've found that um people still feel compassionate about this. You know, we have a, um, we have a massive fundraising event on November 30th. We're, we're scheduled to have more people attend than ever. Great. Um, we Great. run volunteer trips every year, and every year we have more and more people coming. And now that people have been on these volunteer trips and seen the conditions, I, I feel that they, from the conversations I've had with people, they connect way, way more with it. I do have to say, however, that when I do meet someone who's not fired up about it, it's very difficult for me to hold my tongue.
1: Yeah, I understand. That. Amanda, thank you uh, for your work, and thank you very much uh, for your call eight seven seven three zero one
0: eighty nine seven. Let's play this little clip. This what was do we have? Uh, gotten. Uh, this was obtained a couple of days ago. This is a. Uh, it's in Spanish, but you can hear the translation, and it is a mother at the Port Isabel Detention Center Immigration Court trying to explain how desperate she is to be reunited with her uh, child. Please,
5: please,
0: please. Del país. I, am por mí,
6: por I am begging, Your Honor, please do not remove me from no the
5: country. No do it for
6: me no or for my soltera. son.
7: Lo How old is your child? Siete años. And where is your child?
0: No sé, me dijeron que aquí en Texas. I don't know, but they told me. Okay. Is
1: it getting worse? Than Seven,
0: that? No, and I think that we that we have to keep playing these kinds of things as they become available. Other people people have to keep playing these kinds of things. Oh, and I have more faith in in uh, my fellow journalists than you. I think that these stories are going to keep. Why don't rolling you read from out. the front
1: page story in the New York Times? Since this is reunification day, read from the story. Well, is, oh, there isn't one. Why
0: don't you read the story inside the paper?
1: Well, inside the paper, what does that mean? You worked at a paper. What does inside a paper mean? It's less important than the stories on the front page it's, of the paper. It's,
0: it's there is breaking this news. is
1: reunification day, okay, as ordered it's reunification by the court. I just don't what think better
0: day to do this, Jim. You're really obsessing over whether people have forgotten about this. I don't think they have.
1: Mike in Charlestown, you're next. You know what this is like before Mike? This is analogous to our discussions with Heather Goldstone about the environment. Everybody cares about the environment, and what Heather says, if you ask them to rate. The importance as a voting issue, it's not in the top 10. Everybody cares about the separation of kids from their parents, but other than that day of outrage, it's not in their top 10. I wish – I hope you're right, but I don't think you are. Mike Charles, Charlestown, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for the call. Hi. Hey, guys.
8: Love the show. Thanks. Uh, first, uh, I'm a Trump never Massachusetts Republican, just so you can understand where I'm okay. coming from. Okay. Okay. Um, And I'm not fatigued on this issue. Like, I'm just completely outraged every day that this is still going on. In my worldview, this is the American government trying to deter activity by abusing children, which is, you know, just saying that sense aloud is kind of hard to believe.
1: By the way, Uh, just if I may, if, if I may, the headline this second on CNN, 900 plus parents will not be reunited with kids by today's court deadline. But continue, Mike. Well,
0: there you go. They got a lot so, I mean, I I,
8: Yeah, I agree with you guys. Coverage has been dying down. I mean, I, I guess what I don't understand is why aren't the Democrats hammering the Republicans more on this issue? Sorry, I'm walking by a truck now. Well, uh, you know,
1: I, I'm, that's a great th- point that th- I that wish we had brought th- up, because I would argue that it's one of the few issues that crosses all or most ideological lines because it involves kids and everybody thinks but for the grace of you know what that could be me so that's a wonderful point mike and i don't i don't understand they're part of the problem too and thank you kindly for your thoughts and your uh, and your call
0: Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Have we fallen down on the re- reunification of children separated from their parents at the border? Do you agree with Chuck coverage?
1: Todd, don't you? That the, the the Trump administration their their actions suggest they do not give a damn about this. Is that that's not an unfair? Comment right? Well,
0: Homeland Security Secretary uh, Kirsten Nielsen uh, insists that they're they're going to try to meet the family deadline. They're not. going to So meet why the they family deport deadline.
1: 463 people, which basically guarantees that those people and their kids may never, never be reunited. You
0: know, the since only they're thing... probably
1: hiding in the country they were deported to, because that's why they left the country to begin with, because they were so scared in most cases.
0: The only thing I can think of, and you think of, you know, in the United States where parents are charged with abuse or neglect, and, and the state has to take away their children, yeah. how careful everything is, yeah. how, many, how much uh, paperwork there is, the, ste- the steps you have to go through. It is really difficult to take away parental rights. Uh, mm-hmm. Even sometimes I think they should take away parental rights faster than they do. But in any case, you can only think that there was a w- w- thinking from on high that these people didn't matter. I they, think just, that's they, exactly just, what they just they think. didn't matter, either because they were from other countries or they were poor.
1: Or their skin color yep. is not the color of most the, of our they leaders. They just
0: didn't bother. And I think the more that comes out, uh, I, I don't buy I, don't I hope buy. you're right.
1: Molly and Wes Newberg, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for your patience. Hi.
8: Hi. How are you? Good. So we, are, we uh, banded together a bunch of parents. Uh, we called it Pentucket Moving Forward, and mm. we put out a bin, and we got booked and teddy bears and i just came back from the post office shipping out a bunch of boxes to two different locations to help these children uh with english and and uh give them a little bit of love and um in our community i find that the parents are definitely banding together to try and make uh, an effect change um i don't think it's national and i think it definitely goes on party lines and it's um very disparaging i do agree with you that uh it is out of the the mainstream. Um, And I think there's too many shiny objects for everyone to pay attention to. And I think we have to pay attention to the children. The children are just the most important at this point.
0: Well, you're
1: doing what you can do, which is spectacular, Molly. Thanks for giving us that info.
0: Well, you know what else? Molly raises a good point about it being more one district than the other, because I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the last poll I saw said 60 some percent, I think it's 68 percent of Republicans think that what he did at the border is okay.
1: I don't know. It's, I think it's somewhere in that. Uh, it, it's far uh, higher double, than. It I should, should double check. Be. The sixty-eight percent is or number of Republicans that thought he did fine in Helsinki. In Helsinki. But there is, is a, a number that's comparable uh, in terms of kids, and if it's higher than zero, it's uh, it's too high. Tad, you're in Rhode Island. You're on Boston Public Radio. Hey there.
4: Good morning. Uh, I want to thank you, folks, for taking my call. Only very brief.
3: Sure.
4: Uh, talking to uh, conservative. Uh, and what he said was, uh, they don't they don't really care what he does, right? Mm. I don't care if he rapes somebody on Main Street. I'm making money. The guy's playing the stock market, so are always making out, you know. And they don't care what he does. So I mean, I'm gonna leave it at that. Thank you for your time.
5: Yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, you may sadly be right because obviously, much of what this president does is a function of what plays or doesn't with his base. I. It's hard for me to believe you could have a kid or have a nephew or have a niece or have a sibling or something – and not find this to be grotesque. You know, i got to correct myself. What would you say? I, I,
0: sell, I, show, I sold Republican short. What's the number? was way off. What was it? 35%. Approve of it? Approve of this. Yeah, well, So that's pathetically that's, high, isn't it? Well, his base is, what, around, 35%? around that number, too, so I guess that's why, but I spoke ill of my... Uh, you
1: know what we're going to do? We're going to seriously uh, take very seriously the recommendation of that first email or about mentioning this, even if it's only the number of days after uh, the separation that... Uh, they are still not reunited. So maybe it'll keep it in our consciousness, too. So thanks for the recommendation.
0: Okay, we are talking about, uh, uh, we have been talking about this, and we're going to keep talking about it. But right now we're going to talk with our food writer, Corby Cummer to remember the great food critic, Jonathan Gold, and much more next on Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie And Because Facebook was eating someone else's lunch, they no longer have such a thing as a free lunch. Mountain View, California, this is rather amazing, has won a power lunch power struggle. In order to promote local restaurants in the town, it passed a rule that bars companies like Facebook and Google, which are there, from fully funding free meals if they're served inside their famous office parks. Joining us to take on these, I love that story, and other headlines at the intersection of food policy and food culture is Corby Comer. Corby's a senior editor at The Atlantic, columns for The New Republic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. Hey there, Corby. Hey there.
0: Hey, Corby Kummer. Uh, before we get to uh, uh, Mountain View and Facebook, let's talk a little bit about this $12 billion uh, bailout, taxpayer bailout for farmers who've been hurt by the president's uh, tariff wars. Um, this New York Times story that, I, that I'm reading talks about how the farmers, the corn, wheat, and soybean farmers, have already lost more than that, $13 billion, which raises the obvious question, or do we just keep – putting out more and more money and what about the other places like whirlpool and stuff that are getting impacted by this
9: when are taxpayers going to see any benefit of trump's trade war well nobody knows and uh first of all what's the history uh trump imposed wants to have a trade war with china and mexico And is imposing tariffs on steel. How are they and other things? How are they retaliating? By going for Trump's base in the Midwest. Farmers who have and fought for years to have huge soybean and corn contracts because that's what huge industrial farms in America make. They're already subsidized by the government to grow enormous amounts of soybean and corn, but now they're in danger of losing their contracts because of these ridiculous tariffs as they see it. What was most sort of charming in a blood-curdling way about the Times story is every, every politician they quoted as being completely against the idea of government welfare to make up for the pain Midwestern farmers are feeling by losing their contracts, losing their profits, was Republican. They didn't quote one Democrat. Every member of a farm association, they're saying this is a ridiculous, hurtful, backwards policy.
1: Well, you know, there's another part of this which I had not thought about, which is fairly obvious and important, is when you lose your business with a particular buyer... It isn't like when uh, tariff nirvana is reached, if it ever is, in a month or a year, that you just flip a switch, as someone said on NPR this morning, and you have your, your, your client back. It took a long time to cultivate that relationship. It's over in many cases. And restarting it is not like an overnight kind of proposition. So the potential damage from this, even if these tariffs work as Trump says they will, has potential to be incredibly long-standing. It's really, it's horrible.
9: It's completely unthought out, and it's years long, years worth of damage. And, you know, wait till we see what happens in Iran, uh, not to bring something else up. But here's Senator Ben Sasse, who's one of Trump's most outspoken oh, yeah. <laughs> critics, Republican of Nebraska, saying... This trade war is cutting the legs out from under farmers, and the White House plan, in quotes, is to spend $12 billion on gold crutches. So it's welfare. It's exactly what Trump says he doesn't want to do, and here well, he's doing it.
1: And some people, like Lisa Murkowski, a Republican from Alaska, says, I want my welfare. If uh, agriculture is going to get it, then I want <laughs> energy industries from my uh, state that are being damaged Hey, Corby, to get it.
0: Corby there's one more great Ben Sass quote. He says... Uh, The tariffs and bailouts aren't going to make America great again. They're just going to make it 1929 again. (laughs) (laughs) That was was another catchy one.
9: And why aren't the Republicans mobilizing against the rest of the administration?
1: So, uh, Corby, we've discussed uh, Marjorie's favorite term with you almost every week, pea milk. (laughs) Uh, as in PEA milk and it turns out there's a fight brewing I think it's at the FDA you'll tell me if I'm wrong but it's some government agency because the dairy milk types don't like the fact that almond milk soy milk and pea milk are called milk at all who's going to win this battle and who should win this battle
9: I think that the manufacturers of almond milk and soy milk are going to win and that they should win. Why? Um, What was interesting about a lot of the stories about this battle, which is to get them to stop being able to use the word milk. I'm because sorry, Because milk clear, is not right. from a yeah. lactating animal. Right. It is not a lacteal secretion. And as the FDA said last week, wittily, an almond doesn't lactate. <laughs> you know, that's all fine. But what about peanut butter? There's no dairy product in peanut butter. That's Would a oh, it, great yeah. point. Would it sell if it was peanut paste? No, probably <laughs> not. And are... Um, are consumers hoodwinked by this? No. They are looking for dairy milk alternatives because they're allergic to milk or they don't want to have it or they're worried about getting cancer or they're lactose intolerant as a huge part of the population is. The the United States is the enormous milk consumer and promoter it is uh, partly because of um, government subsidies in World War I. So government in World War I was uh, taking the milk away from American consumers and shipping it overseas four soldiers. Then all of a sudden, they had too much milk after World War I. So they started shipping it off to schools. And it became this great patriotic, all American thing to have milk in schools. It's not that way in Europe. It's not that way in the rest of the world. You know, all of Asia is lactose intolerant. I mean, uh, much of it is. Much of Northern Europe is lactose intolerant. Ashkenazi Jews often are lactose intolerant. So it's it's peculiar to America. And I think that Uh, Dairy manufacturers shouldn't get to be the only ones who use the word milk.
1: Yeah, when you said you thought the almond milkers and the soy milkers were going to win the battle, and I was about to do a follow-up to you and say, well, isn't the issue which industry is more powerful because that's who wins in this administration? But then when I realized the thing the soy people have going for them is they're getting screwed by the tariffs. And so I assume one thing that the federal government can – the bone they can throw them in addition to part of this bailout is to say we'll allow you to call soy milk, soy milk. I mean I don't don't think it's ridiculous to suggest there might be a connection. Is it?
9: I'm very touched by your optimism
1: in the coordinated (laughs) efforts of this administration. (laughs) Thank you for your compliment. We're talking to Corby Comer, our food guy.
0: So, Corby Comer, I read this story about the guy being annoyed by the music in the restaurant, and then how this, uh, and he was a musician, and he decided to make his own playlist because this does happen when you go sometimes to restaurants and it ruins your whole meal.
9: Well, you know, I read it. So this is a story about a Japanese composer and musician of of some worldwide renown, although I had never heard of it. Nor him, had I. Uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto, who uh, very, very well established, and he happened to love a particular restaurant on 39th Street east of Lexington Avenue, a restaurant I have been to. I felt, Ooh. wow, I've been there. <laughs> if only I remembered the music. But it was clearly before he got to the playlist. He just couldn't stand it. And so the way when you read or people read food critics and think "Ah, they are ridiculously sensitive, this is just absurd to carp about this. So that's how I kind of read this. So this guy hated the Brazilian music that was coming over the Japanese restaurants, loudspeakers, not just because it was Brazilian. He loves world music, but it wasn't good enough Brazilian for him. And so he wrote the chef and said, I like bringing my son here but this music is unbearable. Let me supply you your playlist. So he did. So rather than having indiscriminate jazz, and uh, he has world music that is apparently uh, lulling and soothing and gets you in the mood to have uh, a lovely, a contemplative dining experience, but isn't the unbearable uh, middle-class dreck that he thought this restaurant was playing. You know,
1: I wasn't quite clear what the point of the story was was it just an interesting slice of life story which it was or is it suggesting that this is going to cause restaurants as they should to focus more on the atmospherics i mean they worry about the physical atmospherics most restaurants do so is this the point that this is going to be the beginning of something new or is this a one and done in mary hill or in the mid east side of manhattan
9: so you would not want to be, me to be a cynical journalist on this program, I'm sure. But no. here's how I read this. It is a, it's a very good popular music critic named Ben Ratley for the New York Times who found out about this story and decided, I am dry of column ideas and I'm going to write about... This musician in New York. I mean, it's an endless story about the efforts to read this playlist. It what is. other restaurateurs might or might do, and I don't think anything will come of it. So I would say it's a one and done
1: story. Oh, gosh, but why I don't really restaurants? Well, not only did I, but but why don't restaurants? I mean, you're in the business. Uh, uh, why don't they take this more seriously? I mean, I, I, as I said a minute ago, I'll quote myself. Most restaurants take very seriously what the physical space is like, particularly in the last 20 years, it seems to me. So why is the audio space not relevant to the experience? I don't mean because they want to be nice to us, but because they want us to have a good experience and come back again. You know,
9: what I thought about when I read this story is which restaurants around Boston are interested in creating an overall experience. So I thought of, for example, Juliet in Somerville, uh-huh. whose, whose chef sends out daily newsletters, uh, Josh Lewin, and he he wants to create an overall dining experience. How many restaurants are quiet enough— that you can actually understand the music that's yeah. going on. Yeah, that's a good point. And there. and and it's not that many. So yes, Japanese restaurants want to create this lulling, soothing, meditative, contemplative experience. So it could apply to them, and they should be very thoughtful. But most places like bars and restaurants, if music is there, it is to drive the patrons out after eating, so they can turn the tables. So I, I don't think they're just. I don't think they're thinking about it that much. But sure, why not? Maybe they should. It's a business opportunity.
1: We're talking to uh, Corby Cummer. Corby, you wrote a beautiful piece. I think it was on the Atlantic site about oh, Jonathan God. Gold, who is Thank obviously you. the, is he the first or the only uh, food critic to have won a Pulitzer? Only. Only. First and only. And he obviously just recently died at a very young age. Tell us about uh, uh, about Gold.
9: So a week shy of his 58th birthday, he died of pancreatic cancer. Uh, saturday which had been diagnosed the first week of july oh, wow so his family is reeling and his family includes his wife and partner in everything a gifted literary editor in los angeles named lorio Ochoa. they defined los angeles so jonathan gold speaking of music began as a music writer in Los Angeles, a city he loved and grew up in. His, his father was a, a bail compliance officer whose, um, whose clients included Charles Manson. I mean, he grew up sort of in this eccentric, uh, central-to-Los Angeles family, and he loved music. And I first read him when he was writing about rap. He's he's uh, credited with coining the term gangster rap. Really? And he wrote these fantastic... Fantastically colorful profiles of rappers who would who would distribute arms out of their duffel bags as if they were candy on a table in a grade school. Ooh. He came up with these images that nobody else would. He was this fantastic writer, and he started doing a column for L.A. Weekly, the alternative weekly paper in Los Angeles in its glory days, uh, in the mid and late '80s, about called counterintelligence about the taco stands and especially the Korean restaurants, he mapped out all of these ethnic, not a term that's uh, politically correct, enclaves of different cultures that didn't jostle, even though they were right next to each other. And he would be the only white guy in these places. And it was an education for me. I just remember being completely uh, enlightened by Korea and the different kinds of Korean food, and it made me want to get on a plane and just have Korean food in Los Angeles. It made me want to eat with Jonathan. And luckily, I was a friend of Jonathan's. I became a friend of his in the, in the 90s, and There were thousands and thousands of people who were completely devoted to his writing because he was telling them about taco stands fueled by old car batteries in the middle of the night and about to be shut down by the health authorities. All these places they could go for a lot of, um, you know, exotic food like brains and all kinds of awful That sounded like they were daring risk food. But to him, they were part of a whole culture that Los Angeles, everybody in Los Angeles should appreciate and mix with. So you're probably thinking of your late friend, Anthony Bourdain. I was just going to say that. And you are thinking of him for a very good reason, because he had just the same aims as Jonathan Gold. Open people's eyes to the cultures all around them. And the people who make them, and go in and mix, and understand something about the people who make the food, the people who are eating it. There's so many cultures right around you. Uh, the difference is that Gold was Jonathan Gold was doing it in the in the late '80s, and Bourdain started his fantastic uh, show in the, in the 2000s.
1: You know, uh, Corby, uh, in your beautiful piece, you quote. Uh, uh, Jonathan Gold a couple of times, and I'm going to read one sentence from him from your piece. The only problem with it is there are four words that I'm not sure I can pronounce, <laughs> but so I'll do my best, and just don't mock me. You or Marjorie. Okay. Great gelato makers specialize in capturing the ephemeral, the flit of resinous complexity across the mid-range of a white peach, the bare hint of sweaty afternoon sex and the scent of a juicy midsummer melon, The phenolic, does that word, did I get that right? Yeah. The phenolic fugue inscribed in the taste of a ripe banana. I mean, that is that is unbelievable.
9: Yeah, in one sentence. In and, one and sentence, what right. And what I said in the piece was I would often write him fan letters and he would be very nice. But what I really wanted to tell him was every time I read <laughs> anything with your byline, I think, great. why do I even bother to write?
1: <laughs> no, that was and great. And so
9: you read that sentence. And, you know, you just want to just end your writing career right away. The bare hint of sweaty afternoon yeah. scents and the scent of a juicy midsummer melon. You know, I I could die happy. I don't didn't want him to. Having written that sentence, every piece was full of sentences like that.
0: So so, if someone wants to take a look at Jonathan's uh, work, do they go to the? Do, where do they start? Do they start with? So the they go rap- to
9: Los Angeles Times, and, and, and there's Counterintelligence. They go on to Amazon.com okay. and they buy Counterintelligence, a book, or this easy one-stop shopping. When he got the Pulitzer, the Pulitzer loaded onto its site. 10 of his columns oh, from the great. previous year it's in great. 2016 from which that uh, bare sweaty at mid-afternoon sex sentence came. Okay. And so just one page loads 10 pieces.
1: You know, Corby, we st- we're talking to Corby Cummer. We started this discussion with something that we're going to discuss as a variation on at the end of the show is Mountain Valley, Google and Facebook's home, or at least part of their home, Mountain, are, are, uh, Mountain View, I'm sorry, are saying uh, 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 no, no more free f- in-house food if you want to pay for the food of your employees, it's fine for you to make it free at one of our restaurants. But you're the major employer, and you're terrible. you're killing our uh, our businesses by doing this. And San Francisco, incredibly enough, is contemplating doing this too. They're
0: banning them. I understand. I understand. Them. They're banning On-site in-house cafeterias. free cafeteria. This is a step too far. Okay,
1: is it a step too far, Corby Comer?
9: I think this is something definitely you should discuss with your readers. I don't think so. And I love the idea. Even though I work, the offices of the Aspen Institute in Washington are a a food desert. And without a cafeteria across the street of the World Wildlife Fund, we would be sunk. So these places are often in... You know, very lovely, completely bland, suburban nothingness. And so the employees need this wonderful, incredibly healthful, organic, beautifully prepared food that Facebook and Google uh, provide. And they do it, you know, fantastic standards of sustainability. But it makes the employees into captives exactly. and it is keeping them there forever exactly. and it is completely depriving the economy of thousands of people and millions of dollars they could be getting so I think it 's just terrific to say these people have to get out and see some sunlight and see some daylight. And mix with the people like Jonathan Gold was getting them to. I think it's great. If you've been in San Francisco recently, and I'm sure you have, which has been completely colonized by Silicon Valley, people want to live in San Francisco because Silicon Valley is so horribly suicide-inducingly bland. (laughs) And, but there they are at bus stops and they're right next to the homeless people and they're getting on buses that don't stop for regular San Francisco. They're private
1: buses of those companies. It's weird. Yeah. It's it's
9: and it's as if they're being, you know, loaded into a spaceship and going someplace else and being beamed into Boy. Facebook land or Google land.
1: You are nailing What's your response to this? It's a twofer. It's screwing the restaurants and it's making yeah. employees captive. right. the idea right.
0: of the city banning a cafeteria at Business is is just a little much for me. It's just a little, but but Jim loves to ban everything. So Can I tell not, you
1: something? I wouldn't mind if they banned the cafeteria here at GBH, <laughs> even though it's not free, overpriced, and under whatevered. Really, it's not that good. Oh, get nice some local competition. That. That. I have said yeah. that.
0: Okay, Corby. Come nice with. to talk to you. Thank Corby Thank you very very much, and, and thank you for introducing you. me to Jonathan Gold. It was a beautiful piece by you. Yeah. Knew, I didn't thank even you. know about him. Yeah, it was great. Corby Kummer is, senior editor, is a senior editor at The Atlantic, columnist for The New Republic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. He's got like
1: 12 jobs. He does. He, got a lot so of he really jobs. does.
0: Up next, community leaders are already giving incoming Boston Police Commissioner William Gross uh, their wish list. But is it really a to do list? Former Suffolk County Sheriff Andrew Gabra joins us for this and more next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. We are live from our WGBH studio. Uh actually we're not. We're right here in Brighton. See you later.
1: At noon on today's BPR, community leaders are giving incoming Boston Police Commissioner Willie Gross a wish list. But how much of a honeymoon does he have before that becomes a to-do list? On today's edition of Law and & Order, Andrew Cabral joins us to talk about the challenges he'll face and the unique responsibility he'll have as the city's first black police commissioner.
0: From there, we look at why Ivanka Trump is folding up her fashion line. Is it because her brand was damaged by her father's policies, or is she aiming to build a bigger brand within the West Wing? Harvard Business School's Nancy Kane joins us for that. Then we continue our primary election coverage with a look at what might be the hottest race this fall. Secretary of State, Boston City Councilor Josh Zakem is here to talk about his run to unseat Bill Galvin. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. He is Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie and You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, hour number two. Hello, Jim.
1: Hello, uh, Marjorie. So here with us in Studio 3 for another edition of Law & Orders, Andrew Cabral. Andrew is the former Suffolk County Sheriff, the former Secretary of Public Safety, but current CEO of Ascend. It's a recreational cannabis startup. Hey, Andrew Cabral, nice to see you.
0: Hello. So uh, Jim and I have been having a little disagreement about uh, today's reunification day, the deadline for the uh, president of the Trump administration, reuniting the families who've been separated at the border. They haven't done it. Obviously, uh, he thinks that uh, it's not on the front page of the New York Times. That attention is waning. I think, uh, yeah, it's not on the front page of the New York Times. But I-, I don't think the attention is waning. I think people are still upset about this.
1: Didn't Chuck Todd agree with me?
0: He did agree with you. Okay, go ahead. I I I
10: sort of agree with both of you, and that's usually not the case. I mean, I th- I think that the the level of um, outrage and anger. Uh, over this is still very, very substantial. What's unfortunate is that, you know, in in the Trump era, there's a new thing to be outraged about almost hourly, and it does exhaust people, and, you know, there are so many intentional distractions and, you know, additional outright scandals that it can be very difficult to focus on everything. But this is one thing that I think that people need to really maintain their outrage about, (laughs) you know... It's, it's almost impossible to wrap your head around the idea that the government of the United States of America kidnapped children from their parents with no plan or policy to ever reunite them and thought it was okay because the parents of the children they were kidnapping, they don't see as real human beings. I
1: agree with every word you said. And you know what's even more, inc- had there not been, even though I do think the outrage is far lower now than Marjorie does and probably than you do, but I hope in both cases that you both are, that you are right. Uh, uh, if there hadn't been the initial explosion of outrage, there probably wouldn't have been even the level of reunification we've experienced so far.
10: Right. And, and I think that they were counting on people being as um, cruel and inhumane attitudinally toward um, these parents, as they were, and so they wouldn't worry about it. But what I what I would like to see I would like to see the judge hold people in contempt. I agree. The heads of DHS, Had ICE, all of them, security, oh, hold them in contempt and, and, and detain them, jail, jail them until such time as either or both agencies. And it's difficult to know who has who has which parent or kid at this point. Uh, come forward with a a plan that is certain, that is executable, and they stay in jail until it is completely executed.
1: By the way, which would happen to a private citizen if he or she... Exactly. It's a crime. That is brilliant, by the way, and I am totally with you. There should be a price to pay. Did you read the story about the the conference with the... the, Not a hearing, but a a conference, you know, an update conference or whatever those things are called, with the judge in which the Justice Department lawyer candidly said... I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know when we can. I don't know if the plans And isn't I mean- she
10: the one who had to dog sit or house sit for the weekend one of the first weekends. I, don't know. I think she was she's the same DOJ lawyer. They were asking if if people could work through the weekend, the ACLU said, we will be here whenever you want us to be here. And the response from the DOJ, and I thought it was this particular uh, DOJ attorney, was I have either house-sitting or dog-sitting duties this weekend, and so I can't work through the weekend. But to have no answer – so, so you know, if you're the judge, what you do is you suspend proceedings right then and say, tell me who it is that you need to call to get these yeah. answers. I'm going to give you 15 minutes to call them and to get these answers and report back or, or I'll hold you in contempt. I mean, nothing short of making people making it l- more uncomfortable and inconvenient um, for people to do something about this. I mean, to not do something about this than to do it is going to work here. That's just not nothing else going
1: to. work. I am totally. And can I with say you. one other thing? Do Minnesota you remember we had a
10: show? This is a long time ago. This here is the beginning of, about, yeah. yep, the beginning of um, the Trump administration. Because this plan has been in place almost since the beginning. Stephen Miller's been working on Zero this since the beginning. Zero
1: tolerance Yeah.
10: And remember there was a story about lowering the standards for hiring ICE agents because they wanted to hire – they felt the need to hire a whole lot more people. Um, And they wanted to be able to lower the standards for hiring them. And I think Customs Border Patrol people. And at the time, the discussion on your show was when you lower the standards for hiring people who you are going to put in charge of the safety and security of other people, you will invariably end up with – unimaginable stories of abuse and incompetence. And that's exactly what these kids are coming back and reporting now about the conditions of their uh, detention.
1: But the primary culprits... I'm not letting off the hook bad actors right. amongst... Right. The, the primary culprits are the bosses. Absolutely. Okay.
10: Ab- yeah, the primary culprit is always the place where the policy emanates.
1: We're talking to uh, Andrea Cabral, obviously.
0: You know, uh, there was considerable backlash and blowback and upset in North Carolina uh, when a woman who came into the country this illegally is, so fun, is arrested... At the courthouse, she's coming in a domestic violence.
1: No, she came uh, in legally. Well, she came yeah, in legally. Yeah. She, she, came, her well, she stayed, yeah, stayed overstayed her visa. overstayed. Yeah.
0: overstayed her visa. Uh, she was defended in domestic violence and so. But it, it seems from her perspective, this is a retaliatory thing. Sure. Where her boyfriend was beating up her son and probably her, and then when she uh, complained, he he said that she was the, the culprit. Uh, but people were upset over this, and that's a good thing, I but think. But she was
1: arrested when she went to court. Yes. Right. Yeah. That
10: ICE was doing part of their targeted, what they call their targeted enforcement. Um, and they are at this point, make no mistake about it, How whatever they were designed to be when they were uh, first created in 2009, so that gives you an idea that this is not exactly, you know, they're not as old as the poli- the Boston Police Department. Uh, ICE was created in 2009, but whatever they were designed to uh, Be when they were created in 2009, they are now a rogue agency, and they uh, this targeted enforcement to not this couple of things. First of all, there's a the problem with the fact that the court seems to have issued a complaint against a woman who had evidence that her son was being severely beaten by this fiance. It is not a huge leap. To come to the conclusion that the fiancé, not wanting to face the charges about beating her son and possibly beating her, called ICE on this woman so that if she was deported, then he wouldn't have a complaining witness against him. So that seems very very likely to me that he's the one that actually called. But for no one to take the time to actually look at this, whether it's ICE or the court, to see that this woman... Quite possibly it was being uh, victimized and then re-victimized. Victimized first by her fiance and then re-victimized by ICE. They didn't care at all that this woman was being set up by someone who had abused her. They care about making her leave the country because that is the only goal under Stephen Miller's policy.
0: Um, do you think, like a lot of uh, uh, progressive Democrats, do that ICE should be done, gone, abolished?
10: I think it's it is such it has become such a uh, twisted and rogue agency, especially with, as I mentioned before, the hiring of people under lowered standards, that you really don't have a choice but to completely dismantle it. If you're going to have some sort of customs enforcement, you need to start from the beginning and rebuild it, and so that wouldn't So based on take that, that criteria, that we
1: have to abolish the education department the same day. We're <laughs> well, talking to uh, – we'll do <laughs> – Maybe that you could with, wait a week. So you that... know, just stay on this for a second. The the, the other point that I think we're dancing around is important, When when cops – Like uh, outgoing Commissioner Evans and others say, you know, I don't want to be the immigration enforcement arm of the federal government. They talk about it's going to discourage women, for example, from reporting domestic violence. Now, you may say, well, if she hadn't come to the cunt, well, of course, she came legally. If she hadn't overstayed her visa, it was not an issue. I would say back to you out there, do you want a domestic abuser living next door to you, even if you don't give a damn about the woman who was the apparent victim of her Uh, uh, she or her son, the victim of this domestic abuse. This is a perfect example of a case where the next time the woman is going to think twice before filing a complaint because she knows she may end up in court, and if she ends up in court, she may get handcuffed and dragged down to ICE. It's just... Well, what kind
10: of cruel thinking, you know, and I say this, it's almost a rhetorical question because I know exactly what kind of cruel thinking leads to this, leads to someone saying, if you hadn't done A or B then the you know or because you did a or b in this case you overstayed your visa you deserve to be beaten and abused by someone and the rights that you have to seek redress for that and escape from that are less than that of someone who was born here and the mm-hmm. fiance apparently having uh, not drawn the attention of ice himself is apparently a citizen so ice is taking the side of a citizen who is committing a crime against a woman who's overstayed her visa and been, and been the victim of that particular citizen. I mean, there's just so much hypocrisy and cruelty uh, here that it, it, it's really, it's astonishing. And shame on, shame on the court for not figuring it out or at least making the the DA's office at least making the inquiry to find out who was the who might be the actual victim, but certainly shame on ICE.
0: Well, speaking of the Boston Police, Jim just mentioned them. Uh, we have a, one commissioner, uh, yes. Bill Evans, stepping down, and he's being succeeded by uh, William Gross, uh, who has been with him at the police department for for years now. So, anything, former sheriff of Suffolk County, public safety secretary, you have to say about either Evans or Gross?
10: I I I will
0: say this first about
10: um, uh, Bill Evans. Uh, Bill Evans' fundamental decency as a human being went an incredibly long way toward the changes that we did see in the Boston Police Department. And changes in the perception around the Boston Police Department. And so, you know, before people start to at me on Twitter, I'm not saying that it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. It's a very large police department, and, and there are things that need to be fixed. But, it, but for the past several years, it has been led by a man who is driven by his love for the city. And his fundamental decency as a human being. And those things were apparent all the time with Bill Evans. And so, you know, he'll be missed. And it's a a good get for Boston College. I'm an alum and and I'm as happy as I can be that he's going over there to head uh, public safety. Um, But I think that, you know, he brought things that um, were thought probably at the time he was appointed to be unquantifiable and turned out to be very much quantifiable to the Boston Police Department. Well, you know
0: what I particularly loved about him was that when there would be a killing in the city, that he would talk about the person that was dead, the family of the victim, but he would also talk about particularly the mothers of the shooters because, you know, no one wants their child to grow up and shoot somebody, and sometimes the circumstances are just so stacked against you uh, when you're a young kid. Um, living in a tough part of Boston. Right. He got all of that. I mean, he had,
10: he had, he had empathy. He understood his job. He understood, you know, the, the vital need to keep, um, to work every day, very hard to keep people, you know, in the city safe. Um, But he also had empathy and, and he's a smart guy with, um, a smart guy with compassion is, you know, or a smart person with compassion uh, is always going to be a better leader.
1: You know, uh, when we, when uh, Commissioner Evans did his final, asked the commissioner with us the other day, we gave him a going away gift. Do, do you know what it was? <laughs>
10: I know what it was and I I actually tweeted that, you know, Marjorie knows her way around a bong. And I and I and I tweeted that <laughs> strictly from too. the picture. Just from the picture. Marjorie was de- you were kind of standing there looking at both of them as though I they was. were some I new was. species of bug. I was. But but uh and, and, and Billy looked completely uncomfortable. But Marjorie was right in there, like That's right. showing him how to hear. Well, I would argue together, as the CEO of Ascend.
1: You probably know your way around a bong too. I,
10: I will not answer those kinds okay, of questions. Fine. I will not be subjected to to was he
1: the? Uh, by the way, just a little bit of breaking news in the in the world of unbelievable stuff. Jim Jordan, who is a congressman, who you probably have heard of lately, and the reason you've heard of him lately is not because of his great accomplishments in the Congress, but because uh, a bunch of former wrestlers at Ohio State University, where he was a coach, say that he stood by and did nothing when they were being sexually abused. As a result of that, he has announced his candidacy for the speakership of the right. House of Right. I mean, because that's a any... natural
10: progression Talk about in the no Hassard model. No, well, no shame at all.
1: And Denny Haster nope. is the former Speaker of the House, who obviously ultimately right. was convicted years later for uh, sexually abusing uh, a young wrestler who he was the coach of. Am I not right about right. that when he right. was prior to his Speaker? For years and years. Just one last thing. on Was was Gross the right choice? I mean, as you know, the same uh, press conference where uh, Evans formally announced what had been rumored that he was leaving, Walsh ended the press – well, ended that phase of the press conference by saying, and the new guy's here too, Willie Gross. Was that the – there was not a worldwide search. Obviously, he was an insider. Was he the right choice?
10: I think it was a great decision by the mayor. Because Willie knows and understands and is incredibly well-known throughout the city too. I think he worked well with Evans. I think they're both fundamentally decent Decent human beings and they worked well together, um, both as professionals, but also as people. And, and I think it's, I think it was a great choice. I think Willie is going to do uh, a fantastic job. I want people to give him the time to, to do the job. I understand. I know that there are articles in the paper about, you know, there's an immediate wish list, and there are, I know, I understand all of that. I understand, um, um, you know, people welcome change and, you know, um, and want things to be different almost immediately. But I'm mindful, having been in that exact same position when I was first appointed and then ran for sheriff, that, um, you know, when you're on the outside saying this is what should happen, you are not the person on the inside dealing with um, a very large department of people. And this is not to say that these things that people are asking for shouldn't happen. It's just that, you have you have to respect the fact that Willie gets to put his thumbprint on the leadership of this department, and he gets to make his choices about the things that he will tackle first.
1: We're talking to Andrew Cabral. Andrew, I am uh, not one uh, in the uh, business of judge bashing, I know, which is very popular and has been, <laughs> and and uh, 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 I'm just not. However, there is a story that I have to say has put me over the edge. There is this... Uh, guy who uh, was is referred to as the Esplanade Rapist. He was just sentenced for uh, three uh, additional rapes, actually, to committed between 2006 and 2010. And uh, Dan Connolly, who prosecuted him, and his prosecutor said they wanted 25 to 30 years sentence On top of the seven to nine, he is already serving for horrible things. The judge decided to come close to one of those numbers, 18 to 22 years, but to say that the first half of that sentence, essentially, could be served concurrently with, I think it's seven and nine left on his current sentence. So essentially, for three rapes, this guy is going to do potentially an additional decade. And I have to say, Wendy Murphy, an old friend of ours, uh, a victim advocate, said essentially he got a volume discount. It seems to me he did get a volume discount. Is that unfair criticism?
10: Well, when I first read the story, I thought to myself, you know... I probably would have – he probably would have gotten consecutive sentences. But it's a plea. It's not a trial. And what we don't know is what all went into the consideration of that. Now, the Commonwealth was clearly asking for uh, a lot more time. Um, I don't know what the content of the plea conferences were. I don't know whether or not there were any you know, defects in the evidence going forward. Um, regardless of that, on a plea, the Commonwealth could, can still make the recommendation that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I note that it was Dave Deacon on this case who was yep. one of the best prosecutors in, in Massachusetts, possibly in the country. Um, but I, – so I don't know what went into the judge's thinking. But
1: there was no but deal goes, on sentence by virtue of what you just said, that they right, asked that they, for far more than what the than judge what gave. The,
10: right, right. It was not an agreed-upon right. plea. So, And I don't know what was – what was happening in the judge's mind and to your to the point that you always make when these cases come up yeah. is that it would be easier if if the trial court said something about it or the judge said something about their thinking but it does but if that happens it does put them in the position of always having to do it every time someone somewhere especially someone with Um, A platform, you know, uh, in media questions their decision and they can't be in the position of constantly justifying every decision that they make. It takes away their discretion.
1: I'm not suggesting there be a mandate. I'm suggesting that it be clear that it is permissible. So if in a case like this, Judge uh, Janet Sanders chose to speak, she could. I'm not saying she is required to speak. If she felt to clear the air, she should say, Andrew Cabral is Right based upon the fact that I didn't think the evidence was sufficient to at trial, assuming we're all speculating, and that's why the plea deal was entered into, and as a result of that, I gave this shorter sentence than the DA would have liked. Fine, but I think we're entitled. I mean, we're entitled to know in a situation, this guy committed three additional rapes. He's essentially getting two to three years per rape. I get it. I I know you do. I get it,
10: and and I I agree with you. Um, Um. Judges get discretion to hand out the sentences that they think are appropriate, and that's really, without more, without knowing more, the discussion really does sort of begin and end. But you know
0: what? I I think it it so undermines public confidence in the judicial system, and with everybody's confidence undermining everything else, it seems to be a good thing to think about the explanation Because I think when you do – I mean, you've been a prosecutor. I used to cover a lot of trials. When you're sitting there in the courtroom, you realize how things wound up a certain way, even though to the public it seems like nutty. Um, But when you get the explanation or you saw the witnesses – I mean, this wasn't a trial, obviously – but you know what I mean, right? And you say, "Okay, all right, I, I, I get it. I may mean, not agree with it, but I get it." And I think you see that a lot. I remember that in the in the um, in the case of uh, the Remy, uh, Jerry Remy's son, right. who had beaten up all these women and was getting off and off and off. Now, there may have been no explanation there because they just goofed, or there may have been some other kind of explanation. He was in uh, some kind of treatment or whatever. It, it, I think it's important when you do something. It seems well what weird and also what you don't know and it. what you don't may not want to say publicly, and I do not know
10: that this is a fact i'm just I'm just sort of engaging in the discussion is you know you also take into consideration as a judge how victims feel about going through a trial and no and I don't think and I'm not speaking for these victims at all, but if but if it were the case that uh, it was going to be extraordinarily difficult for them and the sentence that the judge was going to hand out regardless of what the Commonwealth asked for was acceptable. Um, and the judge also knew that those were the circumstances under which the defendant would plead guilty, regardless of whether or not he was asking for less time. Those are the kinds of things that the public does not know that may may go into a judge's consideration. Um, as I as I've said repeatedly, I don't know what all, what all went into the judge's consideration, but just to give you know your listeners some view about the myriad of things that can have an impact on a case, regardless of what the ultimate record says at the end of the day. You know, what the Commonwealth puts on the record, what the defense puts on the record, and what the judge says, there is there are frequently uh lots and lots of things that have come before that and have been the, the subject of other consideration.
1: When you I should know the answer to this, but I'm embarrassed I don't. When you're sentenced to eighteen to twenty two years, which is what the sentence was again concurrently, serve the first seven to nine years with right. the thing he's in jail for. How much time do you generally serve?
10: Two thirds, I think. Is on it two thirds? I believe it's two thirds on a rate.
1: So the guy could be out in twelve years for. Uh, uh, and by the way, just uh, that's uh, assuming
10: I, that he gets parole, which I would right find. Understand. I would right. find it very unlikely that someone like he, like he would ever get uh, parole.
1: Do you know the judge? No, I don't. don't. By the way, just one last thing, just to complete the picture here, and then we'll uh, move on. One of the two victims, three victims, one of the victims, three victims, I spent 20, this is a victim uh, impact statement in court, I spent 20 years of my life feeling secure and confident and 10 years crying when I'm alone, said the woman that uh, the guy raped at knife point in 2007. That night will follow me around for the rest of my life. He may look you in the eye and say how sorry he is today. I can promise you he is only sorry he got caught. I pay the price for this crime every day of my life, and so should he. he is not safe on these streets. He will do this uh, again. Was what she yeah, said. Yeah, and,
10: and she's and I, I don't. I have. I think she's probably absolutely right um, about him only being sorry because he got caught. Um, I do think, as I said, you know, him coming before the parole board uh, will be a very different. Uh, Situation than uh, taking this plea.
1: I'm going to bring up something that I know I shouldn't, but I will anyway. uh, I'm not going to ask whether you support uh, elected judges because I'm assuming you don't. I don't. Marjorie yells at me every time I bring it up uh, because I sort of do. Do you at least support, either of you, the notion that, uh, and I understand the reasons for that, do you support the notion that, let's say, every 10 years, maybe the state senate or some... Uh, A body arguably less subject to, you know, public opinion. Well, I don't know if they are. But in any case, somebody, believing not the Governor's Council, which no one ever heard of, review... and re-up judges, let's say, every 12 years, every Jim, 15 Jim, years, what? It's
0: the, the, the state senators who had someone in their district that suffered a terrible crime at the hand of this person – at the hand of this judge, rather – they, they okay, be so campaigns. Okay, so
1: fine. So what we have is we have a governor's council of eight people who not one person listening to the show – can name, even though they may have, they may have larger congressional districts, they have larger districts than our members of Congress.
0: Is Beth the, Manning still there? Or excuse me, left? excuse me, the <laughs> governor, the governor, how about the woman that with the, with the, the, went after the hairdresser with the, with Marilyn the, Devaney, wasn't Marilyn it? Devaney. Yeah. I okay. think she's still there. She
1: called our show that day over that that, remember, yeah. in any case, she so said the she governor, was sorry about
0: going after the, the hairdresser governor, she was. with the curling iron. The governor
1: appoints eight people that no one ever heard of, many, some of whom, behaves so grossly irresponsibly, it is painful. But we never heard of them. Regardless. Some, I'm sure, are great people, uh, maybe. Uh, they <laughs> confirm, and then until that person is 70 years old, they serve on a court in the state. There's nothing wrong with that picture. And if they're great judges, then they should just get re-upped every 15 years Would or whatever. But you forget.
0: No. Oh, okay. well, Go, ahead, <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. Go
10: ahead. I'm just assuming all the things you're saying to me, all the questions <laughs> you're asking me are rhetorical. Um, no, no. I think that uh, there's that there's an argument for doing away with the governor's counsel. And you could have advice and consent uh, of the – advice and consent of the Senate.
1: That's what it should Senate be. A Senate
10: Judiciary Subcommittee of At some least you kind. know
1: who they are.
10: At least you know who they are. They're accountable to the voters. Are, you know and they're I part agree. of a larger body to whom they are equally accountable in terms of their behavior um so i i that's it. i think that you know i think that's a sound argument but i think the election of judges is is all, is the introduction of money into the judicial system exactly. people if you can buy an election you can buy an election to be a judge uh and you can already see if you go to the web pages of elected judges who also run campaigns and they're asking for money, and they're talking no. about—the with no, judge no. that we talked about, um, Gonzalez, his... that sentenced the woman to five years in prison for mistakenly voting because she was on oh, probation. His it... page says, help me make America great again. Now, mm-hmm. if you want that kind of situation, depending on who's in power—I mean, I agree that this is—we this, are not a flawless system as we currently stand, but just like democracy, it is— the worst system in the world except for all the others. Who are you,
1: Churchill or somebody? Who? But you
10: know, also, Sometimes I channel Churchill. Is that, like, you say that like that it's him? wrong. I hope I got it wrong. Yeah. And there's, right.
0: You don't hear about these judges unless there's a real screw-up. Right. Because most of them do wonderful work. Oh, what well, the that's, public that's perceives as a screw-up. That's the point. So when they had the terrible killing of that, that police officer, Sean Gannon, down the Cape, and you looked at the guy that killed him and he had a record a mile long and you said, how could they keep letting this guy out? And in those cases, I think those judges is, should explain why they and let that's a guy perfect out. compromise. They could by say, the way, let them talk. Say, you know what? I made a mistake. I didn't see this. You know, just so you don't undermine confidence in you, just because you've been a prosecutor. Right. It's the one thing that doesn't always work, but the courts, more or less. Right. You know, with some great mistakes and, and, you know, the the racism and the institutional racism and the poor people don't have any lawyers and the rich people do, all that, they still more or less work. And if not the
10: judges themselves, I think that there ought to be you know, enough funding in the trial court's budget, they ought to be given it, to have spokespeople who can be accountable to the public in the way that you want. Even Mm -hmm. if you don't want the individual judge who has to sit on the bench every single day and deal with cases to be the person who's, you know, simultaneously obligated to hold a press conference or, you know, even if they issue an initial statement, it is then handled by some sort of press cadre that does this more regularly and is staffed adequately to cover the entire state but i i agree that that's a great compromise between you know your utterly draconian suggestion that they be
1: elected can i also say something good about myself if i may before we end this <laughs> you might Why as well nobody should, else is going be to today be
0: any difference i right? have i am <laughs> both just kind i, am,
1: I <laughs> am not only willing but I am consciously and regularly praising the judiciary as a whole despite the fact despite the fact that I uh, suffered great injustice as you were there for that, Marjorie, when I was convicted on one of two charges <laughs> for that inner that ex- uh, exchange with the state uh, policeman on uh, Morrissey Boulevard. <laughs> Despite that absolute miscarriage of justice, my yeah. attitude is the vast majority of judges do a very fine job. Yeah, that was a
0: great. He was like the great white defendant over in the Dorchester Court. It was unbelievable. He's six foot five. Ed Ryan, who's like six foot six. They went to the front of the line, Andy. No, can I tell you the story? Could I, that I've have never told. I don't think I've said so... Everybody else
1: had The fact had that you Ed right. Ryan is a testament to your He's guilt. He's a friend of mine. He's yeah, a former no, head of no, Masson. No, 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 can I just no. say a quick story? <laughs> it was a cabal. I've told this story about my arrest and Marjorie being a hostile witness and whatever. This part I have not told, and I probably shouldn't, but since you did, I go in the courtroom, and there are maybe 150 defendants. And as someone who used to practice there, you, you will not be surprised. I was the only white defendant.
0: In, I was never in Dorchester, but I was well, chief of district court. so I, was, I know it's I was a, the yeah.
1: only white defendant in the room. And when and it's Ed,
0: so conspicuous. You know, not everybody is like huge, you know, 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. I mean, so, they stuck out like sore thumbs. So I,
1: I go in there and when Ed Ryan came, the judge was late because he was doing an arraignment at a hospital bed. You're shaking your head. I said to Ed uh, Ryan, who was my lawyer, I said, do me one favor. I only ask one favor. Do not have me be called first and <laughs> because it is going to be so obvious well, you know the end of the story. <laughs> the one white defendant in the room who is six foot five, are you surprised by this or what?
10: No, I'm not surprised by it, but the, I'll ask you the question yeah. that I asked you the first time you told this story. What is that? But you exercised your privilege and you went first, didn't
1: you? You got to go? Yeah, I have to okay, go. Okay, so we'll see you. Uh... Marjorie,
10: just keep at this for the rest of the day. <laughs> okay. Why he didn't say, you know what, this is an injustice, and I recognize my privilege as a white man, That's and right. decline. To exercise it, you did not. Sorry, well, that's you know, why I didn't
0: bring it up. He, I just had, realized. he had a lot of important things to do, Andrea. How could he possibly have? have, well, have Plus, with what Ed charges it. per hour, I think you wanted to get him out of there, right? <laughs> exactly, good exactly. exactly. Andrea Gabral thank you very much. Andrea Cabral joins us every week for uh, Law and Order. She's former Suffolk County Sheriff, Secretary of Public Safety, and current CEO of Ascend, a recreational cannabis startup. Thanks, Andrea. Up next. It's the end of the line for Ivanka Trump's fashion line. Harvard Business School Nancy Kane joins us for that to tell us what's going on there. Stay tuned to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Donald Trump campaigned to I mean good for business, but his presidency has certainly been bad for one business, his daughters. Ivanka <laughs> Trump, as you probably read, is folding up her fashion line. Uh, in response, maybe in response to Trump policies, dozens of department stores have revolted by pulling her label. This is before this. Her business was poised to lose billions of dollars, some say because of her father's trade war with China, where most of her products are made. But is this about Ivanka shutting down a failing brand, or is it about building a bigger <laughs> one for herself within the West Wing? Joining us for her take on this is Harvard historian Nancy Kane. And Nancy holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School, and her latest book is Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. And as I said to you, without naming names, we were at an event last night, Marjorie and I were, Yes. where a gift was given to the person who was the not subject, but venti. The, the venti at the celebrant at the party, which was happened to be a copy of your book. So there you are.
0: Love it. Right. And the person that gave it said it was all about what she learned about leadership from exactly. reading your book. So there you go, Nancy King. But I wanted to ask you um, about the Ivanka shutting down her fashion yeah. business. This really well-done piece by Vanessa Friedman in the New York Times basically argued that clothing lines, whether it's, you know, or was selling something whether it's Michael Jordan and yep. you know the, the the basketball sneakers or whatever he was selling or, or Ivanka 90s. Trump with her beautiful clothing it's all about the person it is and yes. so the, the, and, and getting
6: a piece of the person right gwyneth right. paltrow has there's a huge long article on goop her business and you know how people can buy different parts of gwyneth by paying outrageous prices for
0: Getting stuff. stung by bees, yeah, <laughs> exactly, and more. So, is is that what we're to take away that Ivanka has had trouble because her father in some parts of the country is unpopular, and that's why she just shut down her business, or is it something else?
6: So, let me start with the first piece you just mentioned, basing off this New York Times piece, which is, I think, is very recent. This may be today, isn't it? I'm, I think it was yesterday, l- yesterday in the New York uh, Times.
0: Yesterday, today. I'm not sure what the
6: date so, is today. So, um, it, it, so the dear listeners, the article is about celebrity brands and how how important the person is and how in in general how how much power celebrity brands have because regardless of what you're selling clothing shoes china Martha Stewart yep. right placemats whatever You know, flower pots, there's an enormous amount of power for consumers, allure for consumers to buy a piece of the person, right? Their identification with the person becomes this magnet to purchase something. And people have understood this all the way back to Josiah Wedgwood who founded the first consumer brand in 1759 and launched something very early on in the 1760s called Queensware where you could buy a piece of china that had been – approved of by Queen Charlotte, George III's wife. And the middling classes are rush to get a piece of the Queen as, you know, new money always likes to age itself quickly. So this is not new, but it is, has been successful. It stands the test of time. And so I think, you know, and Ivanka is you know is no she's a sophisticated person she knows that so i think the interesting springboard from this new york times article about is she in a sense closing down closing down one brand a clothing brand jewelry brand because remember dear listeners she actually started in diamonds way back when in the early knots um and then went to clothing and accessories is she closing down one brand in the interest of or with an eye to launching another one and and, and actually building the a bigger runway for that now in her her role In the government, so I think that's a really interesting question. Um, What I think think has happened with this brand is, again, to the point of celebrity sanction, is is a couple of things. First, um, as Jim said in the opening, a lot of a lot of companies, all the way back to Nordstrom in February of 2017, right after the inauguration, said no. There's too much. There's too much consumer. There's too many consumer boycotts. There's too much heat around this brand, and I suspect, although no, none of the companies have reported sales by brand in this in, in this story. I suspect that it wasn't selling well enough to justify the heat, and so out it went. TJ Maxx, Marshalls, yes. Neiman Marcus, Guilt, um, Hudson Bay in Canada. Don't think that doesn't have something to do with Trump's. That's really recent. Trump's trade policy toward toward it's based in Canada. Right. I'm sorry. Your your is based in Canada, toward toward Canada. And P.S. His remarks and attitude toward Justin Trudeau. If we're getting mm. back to the personal piece here, so she, her brand has been outed from a lot of different places. There's another piece that we need to talk about. And this is a private company. I need to say so we don't. They don't disclose numbers. They don't have to. But there are a number of companies that have made estimates about this brand and its and its sales performance since her father became president. And what is what is consistent across those estimates from outsiders is that the brand has been losing sales, those are top-line revenue figures, since he became president. So you got a couple of things operating that are, that are real headwinds for the brand. And then you have a series, it seems to me, of important, you know, important moments in the brand's history with her where – The the relationship between her role as a government uh, official or government spokesperson and her role as the head of the brand are really conflicted. So let's give me a couple of examples. One is – an issue that the New York Times surfaced some six or seven months ago about she travels to Japan as a member of the Trump administration, and she secures a really good marketing and distribution arrangement with a big Japanese retailer that it turns out is primarily owned in terms of stock ownership by the Japanese government. Totally coincidence. Just totally coincidence, right? Do you, Some of us will remember early on in the administration when I think she appeared on 60 Minutes. Was it Leslie Stahl? And she's wearing a $10,000, yes. yeah. I believe, yeah, bracelet. bracelet. I forgot yeah. about that. And yeah. then the that someone night on, or something. It's that night, but the next day the staff tweets it. Tweets it. oh, as seen on on 60 Minutes. So here she is, like now, because she's a government official and the daughter of the president, suddenly all the world's her commercial space. And then let's not, there was another instance of this. Um, Kellyanne Conway. And then Kellyanne Conway gets on and says, I'm going to go ahead and do a commercial. She says, I'm going to do a commercial here for Ivanka by Ivanka. So, and that's not, those are not the only instances. Which is in
1: violation, arguably, of government ethics rules. Absolutely. And, uh, and,
6: And again, I kept thinking as I was reading. Reading these stories of a scene in Shakespeare in Love, where Gwyneth Paltrow playing the daughter of this of this very very wealthy um, nouveau riche merchant is going to marry Colin Firth's character, who's a poor uh-huh. right fallen on bad times aristocrat. So it's going to be a title for money, right? Marry the daughter, get the title, the guy gets the money. And she walks in, and and uh, her father is paying all these pounds to Colin Firth, and she says, "Oh, I see, we're open for business." <laughs> And I feel like that about the, a lot different aspects of the executive branch. We movie. are open for business. And so part of this, part of her behavior and her father's behavior and her, his son's behavior is about, you know, very little uh, consistent recognition of the conflicts of interest that are very much part of, of, of good governance in democracy. So I think there's a piece here that's dogging her here. And last but not least, she may finally have decided back in the – perhaps in the interest of bigger fish down the line that it's just not worth the trouble. She's still been involved in the business like her father, even though she's got money in the trust. She has, by virtue of the way the trust is set up, lots of different kinds of decision-making authorities, so she's not – it's not a blind trust. And, and so I think she may just be thinking, I've got other things to do. I'm going to launch a different game. It isn't going so well. We'll be done with this for now. She's got 18 employees, dear listeners, I should tell you.
1: She's saying, by the way, she wants to you know, advance her career in public policy. Exactly, and, and do good almost. work
6: for women. which has been her mantra all along. We
1: all know, Marjorie mentioned Jordan, we all know a ton of celebrities who have, uh, non-political celebrities, who have created a brand that, and I totally agree with your analysis and the New York Times person's analysis, about touching that person rather than the quality of the product, even though sometimes the product, I'm sure, is very good. Is there another political celebrity? I couldn't think of one who has essentially sold their Brand on fashion, or
6: yeah, that's a good shoes, question.
1: or I, I, I can you think of a. By the way, this well, is not even have, an indictment of her. No. I just,
0: Pantsuit nation, but it was not an effort to get... No, but she didn't have a business, get, was, right. Yeah, yeah, it was just people got enthusiastic about No,
1: I can't... Because most politicians do become yeah. celebrities. Athletes, yeah. Tiger yep. Woods. And they, they do. could do it, and right. a lot of politicians... Obviously, they have a following, 30s, yeah. you know, whatever. But I can't think of it. No, they go one, on the speaker circuit,
6: but that's very different, right? Oh, of course, That's very different, yeah. Or they write books, but that's also very different. But you know what I was thinking about... It's interesting. It's a very interesting question.
0: Ivanka Trump's future brand. She came from the... New York ultra liberal ultra liberal glitterati. I mean, they they were traveling in those Democratic circles. Jared's brothers just getting engaged, and he's got a uh, you know they're all. Uh, I mean, Jared's father obviously had his had his problems. I mean, they got it he was prosecuted by uh, by the uh, Chris Christie the uh, governor. U.S.
1: attorney. Yeah,
0: but anyway, the, the successfully. Point is, the point mm-hmm. is, I don't know where her brand goes because now she's associated with the president and the president's base. Right. And his base is not made up of New York, ultra-liberal, democratic literati. So you wonder... I know where
1: she. You wonder where she's going. Where? Here's the story. Calling it an exciting new chapter in my amazing life, Ivanka Trump has been named dean of the business school <laughs> at the newly reconstituted Trump University. <laughs> now, that, okay.
0: that is Andy Horowitz. Barowitz, so it yeah, may not a, be <laughs>
1: total. You know what I mean, though? Yeah. And,
0: and there was great hope for her initially that she was going to be a tempering influence mm-hmm. on the president, that Absolutely. she was going to do right. good things for women and children, etc. That has not obviously gone well. Mm-hmm. We all were uh that, that she, right before this nightmare of the se- children being separated at the border, actually, while it was going on, she posted that picture of herself uh, with her little uh, yeah. son, and then she ha- posted this uh, Mother's Day photograph or Father's Day photograph of them all together. I mean, tone deaf. Yeah. So what kind of brand... I just don't see where Uh, she has a brand future. I don't think
6: we have to worry about it too much, but believe me, there will be a viable idea whether it's – so so for our listeners who don't know, this is a line priced – really a mid-priced line. And it's I've very, seen it. it's and very. Ward
0: and Taylor in Boston. Absolutely, I was stunned. I and they, that.
6: and by the way, they will continue to sell the clothes till the inventory runs down, and they'll se- and liquidators will sell the rest of it. You know, in du- in different outlets. But if you if you start, look at the actual, if you get on the internet site of any either a major retailer or or her it collection, the Von drum collection, you'll see this is not aimed at. This is aimed at a- aspirational consumers, or right. which you could argue everyone is. But the price points are, in general, below two hundred. Do- yeah, below two hundred dollars. Yep. But they're not. This is not like going into H and M or Zara or Forever Twenty One and buying a blouse for eight dollars. It's right. not like that. So this is a brand aimed at solidly middle and upper middle class women. There's I'm looking no, at her floral no
1: print popover dress, which go. I find very appealing. Uh- <laughs> And uh it, it sells for the retail value is one hundred and thirty eight dollars. Right. But I would like you all to know that currently at Macy's it is on sale for a mere one oh nine right. ninety nine. So, That's other than her jewelry, which is insanely expensive. Right. You're right. I did w didn't wasn't aware of this. Most addresses are a hundred, right. ninety, whatever the right around. So again,
6: mid price, middle of the market, maybe a tiny bit above middle of the market in the vast land of ready to wear. So this is not a, this is not a game for a whole lot of people in the say bottom for thirty to forty percent of the American income distribution. So I don't. I think her next game is going to be very different. Is it going to be? Is she going to be in health and wellness entirely possible? Right, and you can imagine that game at a mass level being very very interesting. Huge amounts of room and what the strategy folks call the consultants call blue water ocean out there. Meaning there's room for new fish to get in there and you know yeah. make some make some make some magic happen. So I, I just think that this is a family of show me the money, show me the publicity. And they have evidenced over now three generations extraordinary, extraordinary ability to find the money and find the publicity uh, in all kinds of different ways through all kinds of cracks and crevices and opportunities. So I I, and I think she's a businesswoman before she's a diplomat, a government servant um, and, you know, right up there with mom and and wife or mother and, and partner. And so I think we don't want to underestimate the wheels you know, turning up there. Not the a little bit. By the way,
1: good news for you, Marjorie, as you two what's were talking, that? I just checked. Part of her line are black dresses, which you could add to your <laughs> repertoire now that they're on sale. But you know what's interesting? She
0: gets those sheath dresses. That's the big She actually, thing I I'm looking at one right. right
1: now. You know what's interesting? Uh, actually, the first one for 199 uh, 109 on sale Ivanka Trump embellished collar. Sheath dress, which I think would look mighty fine on you. But <laughs> so, putting that aside, you know what's an interesting thing like which you probably yeah. don't have the answer to. So if if I think it's fair to say Marjorie Egan is not enamored of Donald Trump. Is that I, is that I a fair statement? Okay. So if you, I mean this sincerely, if you walked into Macy's today and you saw a dress that looked a dress, fabulous on You it was fabulous. You, you say I want this? Oh my God! It's only one hundred nine ninety nine. That's my going, going no, to buy Price Ivanka range, and then, then you find guess. out it's Ivanka Trump Would Absolutely you buy it. Absolutely.
0: So so Absolutely. I want to, I want to talk, I was appalled. Even if you otherwise when I was loved shopping it. Shopping to see that Lord and Taylor right here in Boston, your favorite store was carrying clothing. it. Clothing. Yeah. Yeah, I, so I couldn't this believe
6: is, it. This is what we're talking <laughs> about when we talk about retailers saying, "Not for me." Oh, exactly. Right. We not we for are, me. Yeah. So a couple of things. A couple of quick I've things. First, tons of them at TJ Maxx, by the way, on on sale. But there, but I think that's. Not no, and they're a liquidator, right? They're, yeah, they're, they're a second, they're a second seller. Um, and I suspect you'll see it again, but I don't know. They said they've stopped selling it, so I don't know. No, this was a while ago. Okay, okay. fair. This is a while okay, ago. Okay, so I don't think you will see it there. So let me just say two things first, the Jim's question, Marjorie's response. Let's just to say one more time, we've said a couple of times in the last several years on this in this segment, the, politi- the politicization the the of of commerce and of business, right? From CEOs now getting very, very involved in politics to the chairman or CEO of Nordstrom saying not for me, to Marjorie saying, well, I voted in November. I won't have another chance to vote on Mr. Trump well, indirectly during the midterms, absolutely, but not until uh two thousand twenty. But I'm gonna vote right here. No thank you, Ivanka. Great dress, not for me, because I don't believe in your family's policy your family's policies, right? Yeah. So so I think that's one thing to note. Second thing to note is and that we didn't we didn't talk about this, but this is not trivial. I suspect in the story of the Ivanka Trump line, an enormous amount of her her her, her clothing and and the inputs to those clothing come from South East, come from Asia. They mm-hmm. come from China in large large numbers. So you know, Trump came on into office saying, "Buy American, right? Hire American." That is not what's going on when you buy an Ivanka Trump. Well, his stuff was print.
1: made in China, too. I mean, right, exactly. A lot of his stuff made. So I mean, you know, I'm
6: not criticizing lots, lots and lots of retailers. You know I'm, I'm pointing out the difference between the discourse and the, the rhetoric and the reality. Go on. Now, we should say,
1: if you were in the studio, you'd know, well, Nancy is educating you. Marjorie and I, of course, are on Amazon.com. They're, 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 they're shopping on the internet, was, dear friends. Now, but Very busily. You know, getting back to this brand <laughs> thing, you say to yourself, this is shows, I, I mean, I'll be the first to say I know nothing about retail. Uh, uh, You say, well, Ivanka Trump is a very uh, uh, – Jane Doe or John Doe. Uh, Ivanka Trump is a very fashionable person. Absolutely. uh, Looks terrific in her clothing. So, okay, I'll buy clothes that are like hers. Mm -hmm. However, Ivanka Trump's Stargazer Collection Baby Mobile Crib, one of those bouncy things. Ivanka Trump Eau de Parfum. Her perfume line, Ivanka Trump cribs, yep. Ivanka. It is amazing right. so that, how obvious. It gets back to your initial point. You want to touch her. Yeah. It doesn't and matter what the her, thing right.
6: is. So what we say in the in the brand world because I, I on, just
1: bought the mobile crib, even though my kids are twenty four and twenty six, because <laughs> right. it was such a bargain and it's free shipping on the baby shower,
6: <laughs> and great for your next baby shower. Yeah. So so here's the interesting thing from a brand standpoint. I spent a lot of time studying brands because my my tenure book was about entrepreneurs that create. Great Brands. That's what's known as in the in the in the parlance as 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 horizontal stretching. So your category is clothes, your category is jewelry, Mm -hmm. and you stretch it across categories. So now let's do perfume, right? And now Mm. maybe there's going to be beauty, and, and now there's baby, there's child and baby goods. So that you don't usually do that unless you think your brand has a lot of traction with consumers. So that's an important aspect of this. One last aspect. I just don't again. We should, this, because commerce, because buying and selling has become a highly political activity and getting more so, it's not, it's not brand new, this this aspect of how consumers and sellers interact, but it is much more charged and much more prevalent and much more public partly because of social media and much more powerful partly because of social media than it was even 20 years ago and certainly 100 years ago. Because that is happening – the 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 um, the supply chains of of all kinds of manufacturers, particularly in clothing, have been held up to new scrutiny. So how, we've seen this in the in the high tech business, in the tech business, when we talk about how Apple iPhones are made at places like Foxcom, right? These big in China, these big manufacturers, mm-hmm. and you, the same thing happens in the big textile factories and the same working conditions that are that many right. people, people can and are very very dubious very uncertain very often dangerous very poorly paid that's nothing new about that being true of the textile industry doesn't make it right are are true here too so there's there there are you know so that she no matter how you look at this brand under the in the glass house that more and more brands live in she's got issues as we say yeah. and i think you know, again, I think you add them all up, and you add up a company that may indeed be losing money at the top line, and it probably is, as we say in Italy, non vale la pena, not necessarily worth the effort and pain. So I think there's probably a just a kind of cost-benefit of analysis going on here that is important, and that is part of what business people the – kind, the kind of way business people make decisions at lots of junctures.
0: Well, Nancy, um, that was great as always. I, Thanks, I must Nancy. admit that I, I bought Martha Stewart stuff, you know, when she was in jail because I thought <laughs> – I thought, I thought she had very good taste and like certain... Things around the and house. you wanted your house
6: to look a little bit like hers. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Some insider
0: yeah. trading going on. She she did her time <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Nancy, thank you very much.
1: It wasn't. And, she is for lying about insider lying trading. Lying for, for insider, the insider, insider trading. trading okay. Thank Let's you, Jim. Let's be clear.
0: Let's hold. The, you uh, would
1: never have bought her things if she was guilty of <laughs> insider trading, but just lying well, you know, about she, the, the federal lovely, authorities. Those lovely
0: towels. Were they
6: sell them? Kmart, I think. Kmart. Yeah. She, yeah, went, to, she was, went into Kmart. That was a big deal.
0: Exactly. I mean, it was a bargain. It was a Kmart. And she was like, what'd you do? Five months, six months, something like that?
6: I bet her cell was well decorated.
0: And she taught everybody in prison about style and cooking and all these things. She massaged the melons over that in the backyard at Turkey Hill. This is called the
6: postscript to the segment, dear <laughs> listeners. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm sorry. Nancy holds the James E. Robeson Chair of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. Her latest book is Forged in Crisis: The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Thank you, Nancy. My pleasure. Up next. Should the Boston public schools throw busing under the you-know-what? Paul Gravel joins us for that and other educational issues up next on 89.7 WGBH.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan here with us in Studio 3 to go over the latest education headlines. Paul Revel Paul's the former Secretary of Education in Massachusetts. He's now a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. Hey there, Paul Revel. Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Good to be here. And good to have you.
0: Paul Revel, I read this story about Betsy DeVos. We've talked to her about her a lot. She, of course, is the Education Secretary. Um, But I I just could not believe at a time when... All these young people who are drowning in debt, can't afford to buy houses and cars, et cetera, start families, a whole nine yards. Then you have these people that have been absolutely screwed by these for-profit colleges, and they're up to their teeth in debt. What is her latest idea to how to deal with people that have been defrauded – by these unscrupulous colleges and are sacked with this ta- I just can't believe this story
7: Yeah well it's uh you know we've we've known she was headed in this direction ever since she hired in her office or the bureau in her office that handles these kinds of matters, people from those colleges, from the very colleges that were uh, declared to be uh, corrupt and misleading to students. And they're now rewriting regs that were written during the Obama administration, which seems to be an obsession in this administration, and they're rewriting them to Uh, substantially raise the standard that students have to meet if they are going to get loan forgiveness in response to having been cheated by some of these institutions. So students will have to prove the intent of the institution to cheat them, how the average student in the street is going to be able to prove that, or they have to show by disclosing all kinds of personal detail that they are truly deeply in debt. One or both of those things have to be shown. Uh, This is a new proposed regulations are out for comment for 30 days, but clearly the administration intends to move in this direction.
1: And and getting back to your thing, how do you prove intent, particularly if you're an individual and you're up against an institution that's got a ton of money and is all lawyered up, the standard is reckless disregard, which is a really high standard. So even if you prove that they merely intended to uh, defraud you or misrepresent graduation statistics or whatever, you probably haven't even met that threshold to begin with. So in most cases, they've made it virtually impossible for there to be loan forgiveness for a kid who everybody, including Betsy DeVos, might agree was defrauded by their for-profit college.
7: Yeah, no, and even in the case it would appear from these of of an institution that had been declared by the government for various reasons – um, to uh, to not deserve a license to operate, to be put out of business, you still have to show that they somehow uh, deliberately misled you and get you know, and arrive at this. So it's just, it's a decision, uh, one of many, that sort of favors the provider over the student. Uh, the DeVos uh, people would argue, oh, we're trying to correct the balance. Obama went too far in terms of giving students rights and access to the public purse, and we're going to save some money in this way. Um, it's interesting to note that historically, black colleges have aligned themselves uh, with this set of regulations because they feel like they were hurt with some of the um, um, the loan payback kinds of uh, 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 deals that were cut under the old administration. Oh, really? So, um, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a complicated matter, but I, I think on balance, one can't help but be. Uh, sympathetic to students and feel that uh you know an unreasonably high bar has been put in front of them in terms of reclaiming um uh you know loans that they took out
0: you know this reminds me so much of the argument legitimate argument that some environmental regulations are too strict and the paperwork is too extensive and the red you know et cetera et cetera et cetera so it's it's possible that there were some cases where there were frivolous uh, claims made. But to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and and this is another frivolous claim is just denied. Exactly, And, and 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 it's just because there's so much else going on. It's incredible that something that such, which seems to me just a corrupt action, uh, by her and by the people that she's appointed, and not to forget that the Trump that Donald Trump had to pay twenty-five million to settle uh, allegations of Trump University's corruptness as well. It just is amazing they can get away with this.
7: Well, I mean, after all, this is an administration led by a pres, uh, you know, by by a president, by a chief executive of the executive branch in Washington, who was also himself president of one of these universities, which has been sued and actually paid damages uh, for misleading practices with respect to students. So at some level, what do you expect? And this sort of Chaos philosophy of this administration means that an action like this is uh, sort of happens off stage people don 't see right. it and think about it, but there are thousands of little acts like this happening every day, not just in education but across the
1: board let 's come back to Massachusetts. Uh, Marjorie and I have been big proponents of having some sort of civics education curriculum in the public schools in Massachusetts. It appears we're closer to We're the minority, a very small minority of states that apparently did, does not have it. A conference committee came back unanimously the other day saying that there should be not only uh, courses, but also some projects that kids engage in. I have several questions for you. Number one, it is not a re- graduation requirement, but it appears to be a required part of the curriculum. How can something be a required part of the curriculum? And not be a graduation requirement. What's the what is the uh, difference?
7: I, I believe the current requirement is one year of U.S. history. Yeah. Uh, so th- I believe that is a state graduation requirement. Bef-
1: before, be, pre-existing that exists yes, already. Right. But exists. I'm talking about this broader civics curriculum yeah. that was embraced by this legislative conference committee. Can something be a required course and not be a graduated graduation requirement?
7: Well, if it's a required course, it's an obligation on the system to offer the course to everybody. A, a graduation requirement would be a requirement on the student to have taken that course. Oh, I see.
1: Okay. So, so that's the distinction. why did not you do this when you were Secretary of Education? I mean, I, it seems to me to be such a no-brainer. And one might argue, particularly in these turbulent times where everybody hates each other and these <laughs> – right. I mean, right. and nobody <laughs> – and, you know, with all due respect, I hope is that if you look at these surveys, the public could not be any dumber. I mean, yeah. we talked yesterday about how many people don't know what's in the First Amendment. No, it's Can't really they...
7: discouraging. So why didn't you – when you were the well, boss – why yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question, and I think, uh, you know, we were preoccupied, as uh, school districts are in the field, uh, with the exceedingly high expectations that we've placed on school districts with respect to English, math, and, and uh, STEM subjects. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, this, the field is saying to us, we're having a difficult, almost impossible time of getting all of our students to what you regard as proficiency and a graduation requirement yeah, in those topics— And uh, now you want to add another topic on top of that where you're not giving us the additional time or teachers to do it. And, uh, you know, so I'm afraid we were subject to the same forces that have marginalized the arts, have marginalized uh, civics and history, have marginalized economics, have marginalized foreign languages, that when we put um, so much attention on English, math and science, not that we shouldn't, those are vital topics for people to enter into this economy. There's no question about it. But we don't expand time, we don't allow more time in the school day, then our emphasis on those topics drives out the other subjects and uh, and that's what puts it on the side. So I'm in favor of seeing it come back. God knows in these times, uh, civics education and having uh, children aware of the history of our system and also, importantly, I think how to be activists and make a difference in the system is very, very important.
1: And by the way, people like David Hobbes- and others of these amazing kids from uh, Florida have said that their activism, to use their word, is in great part, not just obviously the, the, I was going to say the trigger, talk about a horrible choice of words. The the impetus was obviously this mass murder there. Uh, But they say were it not for their, some of them said were it not for their civics education, they doubt if they would be the kind of activists they've become, which is actually quite, Wonderful, I should say, and a real endorsement but of something. I, that is I also long think overdue. it points
7: the way to the way in which we need to do civics education. I mean, a lot of. History and civics education got a bad name for being sort of memorization driven right right as opposed to uh, some of the best work we see in this domain these days uh, encourages students to come together and collaborate and work on, for example, changing public policy in their respective local communities that 's one Let's, by the way' that's,
1: I think that 's one of the quote requirements in this conference committee thing uh, maybe right. not precisely i haven't seen but the that exact there be a projects that yeah. they each have a project, and you know there was a story in the New York Times we talked about this the day we talked about civics education. Out of the Mamaroneck, New York high school, yep. where exactly yep. that was the goal. Yep. Every student had to have a project about changing
7: local government. Yeah. I love that. It's yeah, a, no, and we have seen a real world thing life. is great. You have Stud- students in Boston have been been activists on a whole range of yeah. different kinds of issues and have made a difference. And uh, we have a student on the state board of education. We, you know, student voice is really important, but making that part of every student's experience, I think, is a way of making the civics curriculum come alive as more. opposed to the sort of memorization uh, approach that really hasn't worked very well.
0: So, uh, Paul Revel, uh, this is one of those circular arguments that, or cu- circular questions, I guess, that been, people have been asking, I think, since busing began way back in the 70s. Uh, and The Globe is asking it again four decades after court order busing. Boston's education gap uh, remains, and apparently the bus assignment uh, program now in, in being used is exacerbating segregation, and should buses even be continued? I mean, where are you on this busing mess in Boston?
7: Well, it's a really complicated issue, as the article that you refer to outlines. I mean, we're spending, I think, about $122 million in Boston over 10% of the budget on busing. That's a very high proportion huge. relative uh, to the budget period, relative to what other cities spend. Uh, so it's obviously something that should draw scrutiny. Um, you know, there are differences of opinion about how much of that is sort of voluntary busing versus mandated busing in different categories and so forth. I, I You know, I think the fundamental underlying question here is, Um, If we had a system of education in which all schools were of quality, this would be a lot less important than it is now. What I worry about is we're we're engaged in a uh, sort of uh, exercise of musical schools here. And people are trying to get access as much as possible to those schools that are deemed, and incidentally, this is a question in itself, what do we call a quality school? Is it the best test scores? Is it the best programs? Is it the most popular with parents or most popular with students or most popular with teachers? Reasonable people will disagree on that. But um, the the problem here is we, for whatever system we adopt, have identified Only a handful of schools is being of quality and everybody can't go to that handful of schools. So people want to move around and when the bell sounds, uh, people are going to have to land in a school one place or another. So uh, this matter of um, how we ought to best arrange the busing system is, in some respects, a losing proposition if you don't have quality schools all across the city because somebody's going to land in schools that you deem to be of inferior quality.
1: Well, we obviously don't have quality schools all across the city no. because the latest, and we've read this same story a dozen times James Madness in the Globe, nearly one in five students in Boston's public high schools are, are two or more years behind academically, only about a third of the 3,300 students who have fallen behind will end up earning a diploma within six years. I'm pretty sure you asked the question about this to Mayor Walsh in the debate we did between Councilor Jackson and him and the mayoral um, debate. The but here's the most troubling part of this, this story to me, Paul Revel. But equally concerning, this is in the Globe story, is that hundreds of students who enroll in high school with solid academic records eventually fall behind, an indication of potential shortcomings obviously, in many high school programs. That's
7: I I agree with you. That's very disturbing and points to huge differences between the effectiveness of different high schools. And that's something that's been on the agenda for quite some time in Boston. I mean, uh, to say nothing of Madison Park, but just generally this issue of high school innovation, uh, it was something that the Chang administration indicated early on, and and, uh, Mayor Walsh indicated that they were going to work on. I know the Barr Foundation has been very focused on innovation in in high schools, but we've yet to see any... uh, real development of a strategy there that uh, that at least is, that's had an impact in the field. So I think what you're pointing to would be a very good place to start sorting this out.
0: What's, you know, it, what, what I don't understand. I mean, and you also, you didn't mention, but the story <clears throat> also points out that they had a similar study in 2007. It said the high schools were in real trouble then. And I guess they did, under Carol Johnson, the previous superintendent, improve some of the graduation rates. But you kind of think, you know, the average person thinks, what is going so wrong in the high schools, and why can't we fix it?
7: Well, I mean, the, part of this, you know, one aspect of the differentiation we have between high schools is we have we have exam schools. So we have right. some schools that automatically well. take the top students, and so therefore, by definition, they're going to do better than other students, and so there's going to be some disparity there. But that doesn't explain the, the <coughs> citation that Jim made that we have kids coming in who are on grade level, and then suddenly they fall behind. Uh, What makes it difficult? I think all the same forces that make education reform um, difficult generally. There's a lot of inertia in terms – there's a lot of momentum for doing things in the way that we've always done them in spite of the fact that they aren't working well. Change is extremely difficult as administration after administration in urban system after urban system, and this one as well, uh, have found. It's hard to make changes in the uh, existing system for a whole variety of reasons.
1: You know, Paul, in the years you've been with us, we've discussed many times the whole issue of the openness of the hiring process for things like the Boston school superintendent. You have some concerns you voiced about, well, if an existing person who has a job right now wants to apply, and everyone's going to know. Well, doesn't that put them at some risk back home? Well, while there's openness at that part of the process, this, the way Chang, uh, Superintendent Chang, went out the door with this package worth somewhere near $300,000, which may have been mandated by his contract, a good recommendation, all things like this. And that's, I guess, fine, I'd say. But not only done behind closed doors, and one could argue it, And the argument has been made. It was a violation of open meeting laws. But even after there was a public meeting subsequent to the deal being cut, at least according to my reading, the Globe story, the school committee chose not to announce. Then the chair of the school committee thought it was fine to not return the call from the Globe reporter to comment on this apparent secret deal. Does this trouble you at all? And why should it not break the confidence of people who who are troubled by how a school department is run.
7: Well, I mean, I think it's a it was a heavy-handed, non-transparent process that uh, would give rise I think, to suspicions on the part of uh, critics who uh, are concerned about transparency in an open process. So, you know, the fact that the school committee and the mayor working together decide they don't have confidence in a superintendent and want to make movement toward uh, uh, moving on from that superintendent uh, and uh, that the contract calls for him to be paid. And that that contract has already been approved. I'm not sure it's an open meeting law violation. I mean, I think, uh, again, reasonable people could disagree on that. But just the optics of it, the way in which it was done is troubling. What what frankly at this point troubles me more than any other aspect about this is that an interim has been put into place – Uh, But there's been no announcement whatsoever, and I I haven't inquired about this, but just as a consumer of the the public statements from the uh, administration or what gets covered in the media, no announcement about what the process is. This is the... You mean for the permanent person? Right. Well, exactly. Joan
1: Vanaki writes in The Globe that the permanent person was just picked as the temporary person, well, right. even though the mayor's not w- telling us that.
7: That was three weeks ago, and we haven't had any response to that, nor, to my knowledge, have we had any announcement of a process. Now, what we, what's wow. co- more conventional is... Before you announce an interim, you announce we're going to have a national search process. This is not like the police commissioner where the mayor makes an appointment. This is an appointment done by a school committee that's presumably to be representative of the community, even though we're a merrily controlled school committee. And you'd think the administration would bend over backwards to show there's going to be an open, transparent, participatory process in getting the very top leadership we can find in this country to come and head up this school system. But we have had no announcement of a process.
0: But we talked about this with you, Paul Revel, before, where you don't wind up with the very top school leadership all around the country because you have to announce, everybody finds no, out. No, that's right. I mean, in, that is a problem yeah. with the process. So we'll end up, presumably, since we ended up with the B team before when the, when Chang was, was chosen, we're going to end up with the B team again. So that's
1: an argument for not having a process? No, but I'm
0: just saying the whole thing just seems... So bound with these rules that are undermining the schools from the top, choosing a superintendent to the lower levels to try to get rid do you of know some what of that undermines inertia.
1: secrecy undermines the because secrecy undermines the assumption too, yep. that people make, and I am a people, is if you do something secretly behind closed doors, it's because the rebuttable presumption is because you think that it's not something you should be doing; otherwise, you would be doing it in public. I think whether it's a school committee or something else. that's And by the way, this also undercuts, in my estimation, your thing about no process announced. It undercuts Walsh's own choice as in interim superintendent, Laura Peril, because mm-hmm. it feeds the whole notion that if there's no public process announced, there is some backroom deal, well, which yeah. is unfortunate for her.
7: No, I, I agree. It, 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 uh, it, it gives that appearance. You First of all, it's unusual in an interim situation that you don't have the interim... Uh, stating out at the outset, I'm not going to yeah, be a candidate a for the too. position. Yeah. In this case, that's you ha- you have an interim who has resigned from her long-standing job. <laughs> that's a very good point. <laughs> uh, and then on top of that, the mayor has given her a very ambitious agenda. Well, a, you know, a, an interim is typically a placeholder, not a change agent, because they don't have the the backing of the system for the permanent mm-hmm. position, and people in the field won't pay attention to them because they're they're interims and they know somebody else is coming. You know, in a month or two. So. so,
0: in other words, we have the new superintendent. Well, that's what Joan argues. <laughs> <and I laughs> think. Well, that's
7: what it, I mean. That's that's the proposition that we'd like to see the administration starting with the mayor Rabat by announcing we're actually going to have. The process that really deserves to be in place for this important a position in the community, notwithstanding the limitations of the process. And I have contended that the mayor also can get very active in the recruitment process and uh, really, in some ways, counter some of the limitations of the process by being an actively engaged uh, mayor and recruiting top people and expressing his confidence in some of those candidates coming forward. And
1: by the way, Laura Pearl may be great. I mean, oh, yeah. she suffers she's because a, of she's the She's a high integrity,
7: knowledgeable person. So the doesn't take anything away from her. She could easily be a candidate if she wanted to be, but that doesn't mean there shouldn't be a process. Good to see you, Paul Revel. Okay,
0: Paul Revel, thank you very much. You'll know pleasure.
1: when the word interim just disappears one day from <laughs> yeah, her business right. card. <laughs> That's how we'll know. On a Friday afternoon.
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Paul right. Revel joins us every week. He's the former Secretary of Education and a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. Thank you very much, Paul. Up next, we continue our election primary coverage with Boston City Councilor Josh Zakim, who's running to unseat Secretary of State and fellow Democrat Bill Galvin. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egan. Today we're continuing our primary election coverage with a look at the Secretary of State race. We're joined by Boston City Councilor Josh Zakem, who is running against incumbent Bill Galvin in the Democratic primary. Josh, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Good to see you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, thank you very very much for coming in. Almost every story I see about you talks about how you're in your 30s, he's in his 60s. (laughs) You're the uh, young challenger. Why are you challenging the Secretary of State, Bill Galvin?
11: Well, number one is around voting rights and access in Massachusetts. I've chaired the Civil Rights Committee on the Boston City Council, all three terms I've been there. And over and over again, we've been hearing about how Massachusetts has fallen behind when it comes to voting rights, that we're not one of the 17 states with same-day registration, that we're not one of the 13 states with automatic registration, that Secretary Galvin uh, has been the one constant uh, not supporting these and, in some cases, opposing them and even going to court to prevent things like same-day registration, which is unacceptable, I think, anywhere, and certainly in Massachusetts. He he supports both now, does he not? Well, he claims he does, but he just won a court case uh, earlier in the month to prevent uh, that reversed an earlier decision that would have had a same-day voter registration in Massachusetts, like maintained our 20-day deadline. So I don't think you can have it both ways.
1: By the way, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong because I was confused by this too. I think we talked to Cal Rose from the Civil Liberties Union uh, about this. Is Maura Healy in almost the exact same position, is she not? She says she supports same-day registration, and is she not defending the state's 20-day waiting period?
11: Well, I think there's a significant difference. there. Well, the, attor- a- the attorney general by our state constitution is the legal – Advisor is the lawyer for state agencies. So Secretary Galvin made that decision to appeal that case, and at doing her duty as she always does and often goes above and beyond, more Healy did that. But she has been vocal for a while in her support of same day, so has Senator Warren, um, so have I. And to Secretary Galvin just coming along in an election year to something that other states have been doing for decades, I think is a little cynical.
1: Speaking of Secretary Galvin, by the way, in the spirit of fairness here, we have invited him to also join us to talk his press person told us, quote, it sounds like a good opportunity... But so far, obviously, not a good enough opportunity to make time to be with us. But the invitation is still open, of course.
0: You know, Josh and we know the President's Commission investigating voter fraud didn't get very far. But there are people that are worried, especially with all this talk about Russia, mm-hmm. that we need to be uh, more tortoise like in our voting and not less tortoise like. Mm-hmm. So, what do you say to those people that get very nervous about uh, making it easier yeah. to vote?
11: Well, security is very important. And what's interesting is that the Centers for American Progress last year did a 50 state survey on election security. Security. And that included a lot of the states that had things like same day reg- all the states that had same day registration, automatic registration, et cetera. A lot of those states, like Oregon, got much higher grades than Massachusetts. Right now, we're about the middle of the pack on security. Are
0: we, see?
11: we got a C. We got a C, and that's unacceptable. Listen, I brought a C home to my parents. That was not a good day. And when we're talking about my house, security, it was a good day. And I, I want was... to be clear, just to, for the record to be full. I mean, it is a passing grade. It is a passing grade. But um, we need to do better on that, and one way we should do that is by participating uh, in meetings and forums. There was a National Association of Secretaries of State conference about a week ago on cybersecurity issues with security officials, national security folks. Secretary Galvin chose not to attend. We are also in last place when it comes to tapping into the 40 million-plus in federal funds in our Help America Vote Act account. That's specifically for improving security systems. So we have fallen behind in Massachusetts, but there are solutions and solutions that I will take.
0: So what do you think is up with Secretary Galvin? That he's just been too long at the fair or he's getting a little lackadaisical? Or what do you think is going on?
11: Um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the first challenge at all um, in over a decade. And uh, it's really been a, nearly a quarter century since there was a I think, real fight uh, for this office. You know, I'm proud to have been endorsed by the Democratic Party at the convention earlier this summer. I think there's a real appetite for some of these issues we're talking about and the fact that we fall behind in mass.
1: Is it about the issues, or, uh, Josh Sacom, city councilor, running for the Democratic nomination for secretary of state, or is it because there is this wave of a la Ocasio-Cortez and others, I'm not uh, disparaging all the issues she or you care about, uh, out with the old and in with, uh, with the new. I mean, that is part of this, is, is it not?
11: Well, listen, there's certainly always... I can't take credit for what's happening uh, you know, in the national climate. I think people are concerned um, about election security, about voting rights. I think it's the issues that have come to the fore. Um, you know, certainly, we've had you know, long-serving elected officials who continue to innovate and who continue to lead. But that's not been the case in our secretary of state's office.
1: You know, uh, we're talking to Josh uh, zagan Can we return the same day and automatic voter mm-hmm. registration stuff? While well, you didn't buy my argument that uh, More Healy's in the same place as, uh, as um, the secretary of state, uh, we have uh, – it isn't even a democratic legislature. The whole legislature is democratic. They could do anything. Mm-hmm. They can override a Baker veto yeah. on anything. Uh, they're culpable. or They could do this tomorrow. Uh, could they not? So are you – as Critical of them as you are of the Democratic uh, Secretary of State,
11: I think there are two two aspects to that. One is if people are pushing for some of these reforms, and this is what I've heard over and over again, including from members of the legislature, if they're pushing for something, the first question people ask is, "What does our chief elections officer think about changes to the voting system?" And when he outright opposes it, it's very unlikely to move. Now, some of those have moved over his objection. Um, you know, he was against mail-in voter registration when he was in the legislature himself, and some of these things. Uh, have been able to move because of pressure. Early voting is one thing that was able to move regardless of uh, Secretary Galvin's position. But I think as anyone who's followed public policy and who's acted um, in the legislative area, you you need powerful voices, you need loud, consistent voices. So that's important. But absolutely, everyone has a responsibility to move forward.
1: Yeah, you just mentioned early voting, and I was a big advocate for that. And I've probably not read nearly as much research on it as you have, but most of the credible research says it does not increase Voting, which is uh, just totally counterintuitive to me. So what is on other than the couple of things, same day and automatic voter registration? What else is on the Zakem agenda that would increase? uh, turnout? By the way, amongst the most pathetic turnout, as you know, has been city council elections, which some years have been in the teens, which is totally disgraceful. Uh, As I'm sure you would agree, what are two or three other things you'd propose and advocate for that you think would increase turnout in the state?
11: Listen, I think uh, it's a long term project. I think civics education is a really important aspect of that. There is a bill at the state house that would improve civics education statewide on the Boston City Council earlier this year. I wrote an ordinance that we enacted that requires our Boston public schools to help eligible students pre-register and register to vote and to make sure that if it's Tuesday, election day, they are able to go vote, even if they're in school. Uh, Our state treasurer, Deb Goldberg, has done a great job with her financial literacy training. I think she's reached forty or 50,000 young people. There's no reason a secretary of state couldn't do something similar on the civics education front.
1: By the way, the the bill that came out of conference committee on civics education does not make it a graduation requirement. Should it be a graduation requirement? Listen, I think we should...
11: Yes, I will say that. I think we we need to make sure, and one of the reasons I think we're, this country is in the position we're in is because of a lack of civics education across the nation. We can't fix it in every all 50 states, but Massachusetts can do a lot better. What else that, is
0: that on ma- your list? Hold on, that makes sorry. it another test, though, right? The graduation requirement would make it a test. Well, I test. think
1: going through that curriculum. I think. Making no, it wouldn't sure have, have to. I'm sorry. I mean, it wouldn't yeah. have to be a test. I mean, you just have to take the course and okay. you pass yeah. the you course. Have to, the...
0: Okay, as long as you pass the course. That's I the guess, graduation
1: I requirement. I guess. Mean, okay. So what else be uh, beyond education? Which, uh, What else in terms of actual reforms sure. within the vote? Voting system that you think sure. could up uh, the ante here.
11: Listen, I we talk about early. Uh, so we already talked about early voting, talking about weekend voting, having elections on the weekends. There's a bill at the state house that uh, my state rep Jay Livingstone worked on with me that would allow us to have our state and local elections on the weekends. That's something that in other states has dramatically improved turnout. It's a little different than just the early voting. Allowing people to vote by mail, a no excuse absentee voting, or a permanent absentee voting, which uh, they have in California. You go in one time, you say, "Hey, this is me." I'd like my ballot mailed to me moving forward. And they also have that coupled with automatic registration. So it's updated as you move. I think those are some simple steps. Also better outreach, not just putting these hundreds of thousands of dollars in public service as with the Secretary of State smiling face. You need to reach people digitally. In their communities.
1: You know, you haven't said anything good about the Secretary of State. I'll say something. I think the red book that comes out on the ballot mm-hmm. questions, talk about education, is as good as any election thing I've ever seen. Do you do you not Look, agree?
11: Oh, absolutely. Listen, an important role for Secretary of State is making sure people understand what can be confusing, uh, sometimes, these ballot questions. And that's a question I got earlier this week, is what can you do to make them more clear? What the is ballot the answer? questions? It's a very tricky one, because You don't want to put your thumb on the scale. That's the whole purpose of the ballot initiative, is that the people who write it have said, you know, they have to meet some basic standards. The AG reviews the language, and the Secretary of State reviews the language for form. But we need to make sure it's clear, and I think it goes back to just broader civics education, which isn't a cure-all, but there's only so much, you know, we can do. People have to take that initiative. But making sure they can get that electronically uh, in a mobile-friendly format, many people particularly in a lot of the populations that are underrepresented at the ballot box, access the Internet through their phones. They don't have, you know, desktop computers at home. A lot of people don't have desktop Mm. computers at home. We need to be more mobile-friendly and accessible.
0: We're talking to Josh Sacom, He's running for Secretary of State against uh, long-time Secretary of State Bill Galvin. You know, one of the things that uh, that, uh, Galvin says all the time, and you've heard it many times, is that because he's been around for so long, he can protect this election Mm. better than someone who's coming in and never done it before. Mm. What do you think?
11: I think that's an incorrect assertion. I think that in 2018, 2020, um, it's quite clear that outside forces, whether they're talking about Russians or other folks, are trying to influence our elections. Um, you know, we're hearing about indictments of Russian spies. This sounds like it's the 1970s or 80s, and we need to be at the cutting edge of this. And the fact that we have a Secretary of State who doesn't attend a National Association of Secretaries of States conference on cybersecurity issues, that we are not plugged in with the security establishment right now is not where we need to be in Massachusetts. We have such brain power. Just in the greater Boston area, in the cybersecurity realm, these folks should be part of the discussion. We should be bringing them in. And I've had a lot of those conversations about ways we can physically protect our elections electronically and policy-wise.
1: We're talking to Josh Zagum. Josh, the primary, which probably nobody listening to the show is aware of, is the day after Labor Day, which is a disaster, I would argue, for a small-D democracy. But when I read about this, you know, my sense was that the statute, the law, put Galvin in a pretty tough place. There were a couple of Jewish holidays mm-hmm. on Tuesdays that would have been later. Obviously, later would have been far better. But then I read, and you probably know, that we have the third latest primary to begin with in the country after Labor Day. Uh, One, did Galvin make the right decision based on the current state of the law to pick September 4th? And two, whether he did or not, what would you do, if anything, to change the law in Massachusetts vis-a-vis primary scheduling?
11: Well, for your first question, I think he made the wrong decision. We've never had a statewide primary the day after Labor Day for a reason. If you look back just a couple cycles ago, Secretary Galvin himself – Uh, explained why that's such a bad idea, because it leads to low turnout. Now, conveniently, he didn't have an opponent uh, in the primary that year. This year, the statute gave him the ability to schedule it as early as September 4th, which he did, or as late as the 18th, any of those days. I suggested trying a weekend for the first time. The law would have allowed that. It would have greatly increased turnout. The League of Women Voters pushed very strongly for Thursday the 13th. We've had Thursday primaries before. It's September 4th is the first day of school in many communities. Never mind folks who are coming back from their summer vacations. Schools are polling locations in a lot of towns. It is not helpful. It is certainly not a move that's intended to increase turnout. And to your second question, um, absolutely, we have one of the latest primaries in the country.
1: We should be moving it earlier. You know, getting back to this, uh, by the way, I'm a huge advocate, Marjorie and I have talked about it for years, for weekend voting. However, uh, do you not worry? I mean, Predictability is a huge thing in terms of how people vote. Mm. If you say in July and August of a voting year, oh by the way, you're not voting on a Tuesday this year; you're voting on Saturday and Sunday. I think down the line, I think it's fabulous. But I think you'd have to acknowledge, had it been done, the likelihood of people getting screwed up and going the on a Tuesday, whatever is is it's pretty great, is it not?
11: Well, listen, we've had Thursday primaries on more than one occasion uh, in the past, and you know, primaries unfortunately do have typically low turnout to begin with um but no you advertise it and both through the secretary you know in a nonpartisan way but the campaigns are doing the work and it's just so much easier i don't see how you don't have better turnout obviously we're not going to spring it on people on friday say by the way you're voting tomorrow but absolutely this was this discussion began i believe in january um which was also a late time to set the primary Mm -hmm. uh but yeah we could have done much better on this and i'm secretary of state uh we will
0: you know josh sake um Lots of people that are city councillors for a while, they end up, of course, running for mayor. Um, uh, you've got a passion around voting rights, obviously. But Secretary of State, you know, you could have run for a bunch of different things. <laughs> was that was that it, the voting part of this, the election part of this, the Red Book part of this? I don't know. What, why Secretary of State?
11: Well, listen, it's not like there's a, there's a menu to pick from. I mean, yep. these are issues that I think are critical to our state, to our nation. And they are issues we worked on on our Civil Rights Committee on the Boston City Council, um, I think it's important. The fact, the fact that Massachusetts has fallen so far behind on some of these basic measures of voter access and participation, the fact that we have a Secretary of State who is just not interested in moving forward until there's an electoral challenge after nearly a quarter century, uh, is unacceptable, and I think it's a responsibility to do this. Um, for for the Commonwealth and for people to have that access. So uh, I'm proud to be in this race. I'm proud of the success we've had, and I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Speaking of voting, I'm sorry. I was
0: just going to ask, Donald Trump, we talk about Donald Trump constantly. Everyone's kind of obsessed with Donald Trump. (laughs) I'm not sure if there's a Donald Trump factor (laughs) in the Secretary of State race besides the uh, Russian 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 angle. Is there?
11: Well, I think there's been a concerted effort by the Republican Party, and certainly President Trump is the leader of the Republican Party now, to undermine the right to vote across this country. That's one of the ways they were able to win this election, because they have enacted policies that suppress the vote from people of color, younger people. Uh, lower income people across the country. And a lot of the same policies uh, are in place in Massachusetts that make it harder for access. You know, there's no, it's no accident that we have a 40 member state Senate with one senator of color. Representation matters. Making sure that everyone has a voice at the table matters. And I think we can do better in Massachusetts. And I think that's a national issue.
1: You know, speaking of voting rights, uh, and there was just that there's some upset about what happened with, uh, with the uh, superintendent of the school committee. Mm-hmm. Very short tenure, gone in three years. There's some upset, particularly among uh, uh, groups representing people of color, about the appointment of uh, of uh, Laura Prill as the interim superintendent, who some people, including John Banaki, thinks is the permanent superintendent. Mm-hmm. Uh, people of Boston, your city, don't get to vote right. on a school committee. Should they be able to?
11: You know, I think we've, uh, in the past, we've discussed having some sort of a hybrid uh, school committee that has mostly appointed members, but that has elected uh, folks from at large. I think if we look back, and this was a little before my time, um, when we did have an elected school committee, uh, that came (laughs) with some issues, Um, and I think there is certainly a lot of truth to the fact that you know, the mayor is the highest profile uh, elected official in the city of Boston, and is someone who I think can be held accountable by informed voters uh, every four years. We have a city council that's exercising oversight. I know uh, my colleague, Councilor Anissa Sabi-George, who chairs the Education Committee, um, is going to be, I believe, holding hearings. Um, to so make what sure. is
1: your position on
11: this? I think a hybrid school committee would make sense. How um, do
1: you say? How can you be a voting rights guy, though, even if it was imperfect, I think is being maybe euphemistic mm-hmm. in the past, and say the people of Boston don't have the the... the right to vote directly on the people who run the schools where their kids go?
11: Well, I would say that they vote directly for the mayor, um, who does currently appoint the school committee, and they vote directly for a city council, which has oversight of that school's budget. We have... I don't know how many dozens of hearings on the school budget this year, uh, similarly in other aspects. So there's absolutely accountability, and I think we need to make sure we're doing that. You know, Josh,
0: you I guys mentioned... Weren't around. You weren't here either. What? And, and Josh wasn't even born was. in the heyday of uh, the late, great Elvira Pixie Palladino that was on the school committee for years. You you missed her tenure. So she was a real you, character. So what's your point? That it was a horrible... Uh, well, the point was that there, there was sort of an okay corral feel to the uh, elected school committee in Boston, and I think... A lot of the school committee members did a lot of damage, particularly to busing. I mean, it was a it, it, it could have been run and in, in much differently than it was. But let me ask you another question. Speaking of Joan Vernacki, she's a piece today in the Globe uh, talking about uh, Galvin's stand on abortion mm-hmm. rights. And he, back in the '80s, when he was at legislature, voted against abortion rights. But you know, lots of people uh, back in the '80s, or Ted Kennedy until Roe versus Wade, he was a pro-life person too. So, is that legit? Do you think? Mm-hmm.
11: Well, listen, these were several votes taken to amend the state constitution to allow uh, prohibition of abortion in all cases, including in rape or incest, to save the life of a mother that Secretary Galvin voted for repeatedly. Uh, These votes were taken in contemplation of Roe being overturned. And to be honest, right now in 2018, with President Trump appointing a second Supreme Court justice, I think that is a much more urgent issue right now. I think we are in real danger of Roe being either overturned or severely curtailed and it's a choice voters need to make. Uh, Secretary Galvin uh, throughout this campaign and in the years since has had the opportunity to uh, rebuke those prior positions uh, when he was running statewide for the first time. He explicitly said to the Democratic State Committee, I reject the part of the platform that supports a woman's right to choose. Um, These are important values, I think, for our elected officials.
1: But in the Jones piece, she says, when I asked Zakim, meaning you, Mm -hmm. to point to a decision Galvin made as secretary or or could make as secretary of state that affects abortion rights, he couldn't. Mm -hmm. So it's not about his jurisdiction. It's about what?
11: Well, certainly – it's about I think it's about values, number one, and it's about you know where people stand on some core rights and core values. But it is also, listen, if Roe is overturned, we're probably going to see a ballot question on this. Just last year, even before the Trump Supreme Court, we had nearly 60,000 people sign a petition to put the issue of abortion on the ballot for Massachusetts voters. The Secretary of State does administer that. But furthermore, with our values under attack every day from Washington, I think people deserve to know where their elected officials stand on these things and that they'll stand up for them.
1: How hard is this race—I don't mean running against Galvin, but uh, even though a lot of people have written, uh, uh, you know, Secretary of State's because of Trump is a big deal, Secretary of State in this race is a big deal because a young upstart like Mm -hmm. you is challenging and won the convention endorsement. Elizabeth Warren is one of the highest-profile senators in America. She—there's a primary to run against her on the same ballot. There are two of your fellow Democrats who want to challenge Charlie uh, uh, Baker— It's pretty hard to get oxygen, is it not? Even though this has probably been higher than any Secretary of State race in this state that we can remember.
11: Yeah, I I think uh, because of what's happening around the country, people are more tuned in to issues of voting rights, of election security. But uh, you're right, um, especially in the middle of the summer. Um, A lot of people didn't know that Secretary of State was a. elected position because there hasn't been a race for Secretary of State in so long. So we are knocking doors every day. We're talking to voters. Um, I'm proud to have the support we've received from elected officials, from activists, from the Democratic Party. But there's certainly a long way to go. Got about five and a half weeks till the day after Labor Day. And we're working hard.
1: Now, at the state, as we say uh, thanks and goodbye to Josh, uh, Counselor Zakim. One, we have invited uh, this current Secretary of State to join us on the air. Again, a spokesperson said it sounded like a good opportunity, but apparently not good enough. And uh, the week of August 13th, all four nights on Greater Boston, I'm doing uh, debates in primaries. Tuesday, August 14th, I am attempting to do a debate between um, Secretary Galvin and Councillor Zakim. Councillor Zakem has accepted. He will be there. Uh, we are told that it will not work, even though we offered two different nights to uh, Secretary Galvin. We hope he will reconsider. So if you want to hear more from uh, Councillor Zakim, and hopefully, even though it doesn't look likely at the moment... Uh, uh, I mean, Secretary of State uh, Galvin, uh, tune in on the 14th. Why are you laughing?
0: He's keeping a very low profile, apparently. (laughs) Well, uh,
11: well, he's he's refused numerous invitations from us, from other folks in this building, uh, from other radio stations to come and uh, present his views of his office and to defend his record, which I don't think is very little d
1: Democratic. Well, there's still plenty of time and we invite him to any and all these uh, forums. Uh, Counselor Zekum, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thank you very, much for coming in.
0: Boston City Councilor Josh Zekum is running to unseat Secretary of State Bill Galvin in the Democratic primary. to learn more about Josh Zekum's campaign. Go to JoshZakim.com. That's Z-A-K-I-M, JoshZakim.com. And thank you very much for
1: for coming
0: in. We are hoping, as Jim said, to continue this primary coverage with Secretary of State Bill Galvin. Uh, We'll see what happens.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and Jim Browder. If you're just tuning in earlier in the show, we were talking to food writer Corby Comer about a ban that's being imposed on the titans of Silicon Valley. No fully funded lunches for employees on site. The idea behind the ban is this. They're trying to protect local restaurants and stores that would normally thrive in the heart of office parks, but that are withering instead because Google and Facebook and Apple give their employees free food as a perk. And this isn't bologna sandwiches and tuna fish wraps we're talking about. It's upscale, healthy, bottomless bounty of food. Now, I guess the upside is that it's free. I mean, that's clear. But the downside is it can be a trap. It is baiting people into working longer days, as Corby said, and it's given them zero incentive or reason to leave the building. So we want to know where you are on this at 877-301-8970. Does your office have a similar meal plan? Are you among those who have to leave the building and forage for lunch? Do you have the double curse of no subsidized lunch and nowhere decent to go? 877 301 Eighty nine seventy. Let me just say, the the gluttonous part of me. Remember, we went to NPR and we had that lunch. Oh
0: my God, it was great.
1: Not only was it, was it very cheap, but uh, but it was when we were broadcasting from there during inauguration week. But and I love that. I love two things: cheap and good. Free and good is even better. But the flip side is exactly what Corby and I were saying. They don't do this out of the goodness of their heart. They do it because their goal is to have the worker never leave the work premises. And you throw in the fact that it's screwing local businesses. I know you don't like mandates of anything. I love that Mountain View, is that what it's called? Mountain, Mountain View, View is doing it. And apparently San Francisco, San Francisco. is contemplating yeah. doing it. Banning. to
0: Telling businesses they can't have on-site cafeterias. By the and way, that's if, heavy if, if you want
1: to fully subsidize this Mountain View rule or law or whatever it is, if you want to fully subsidize the lunch of your workers, you can do it, but you can subsidize it at a local restaurant. You just can't do it in-house. And by the way, that's not just for the restaurant community. I want to say it again. It's for the mental and psychological health of the worker – who has no incentive to ever leave the premises. Yeah, did you read
0: about the uh, Facebook Menlo Park cafeteria workers? Yes, I did. They've, got, they've unionized. They've got a great deal. they just got big raises. They've got affordable health care, mm-hmm. pension plan. What's going to happen to them, Jim?
1: Well, they've been locked in the building for four <laughs> months. That's the only – 877-301. They're not going to get
0: those jobs at the local diner.
1: Now, the flip side is you know that I am a a, – I believe in the perk concept unless it's an attempt not to pay people decently or to keep them in their office. Mm -hmm. If you are paid well and you have freedom and they give you something on the house, it's a nice little thing. Remember we used to – this is pathetic. We used to work at – and we were very well paid, I I should say, as were all of our employees who were on air at our old radio station. Mm -hmm. Remember we would get at Christmas time, our boss would walk around and – personally hand to every single one of us pathetic losers who are on the air, a $25 gift card to buy a turkey for Christmas. <laughs> and again, we were all ma- doing very well, but it was, wow. so it wasn't like they were shortchanging oh us on money. It was
0: like, oh my 25 God,
1: $25. <laughs> every one of us, it was pathetic. So the point of that story is perks work, but they shouldn't be either to trap you or in lieu of something decent that really matters, like a decent wage, eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. And I hope this didn't get me in trouble. But the food in this building is not only limited; it is very weak and it's overpriced. Well, luckily, that...
0: you have your seven little Tupperware containers, so you're all set. Exactly. Okay.
1: Well, we, we're not a good example, we can't go out in the middle of the day, so you it cannot. is not. We have That's no right. choice. Right.
0: Let's go to Alden in Brookline. What do you think, Alden?
1: Yeah. Hi, guys. Hi.
3: So uh, I completely agree. That- sitting us, even if you're being given
1: the best food in the world. Oh, Alden, well, I'm dying to hear you. you. We lost you twice. Don't go away. You're apparently still there, but the connection's bad. We're going to put you on hold, and we're going to take you right after we take Al from Berkeley. Hi, Al. You're on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling in. Hi. How you doing today? Great. I, um,
3: I, work, I work in construction, so I bring my lunch every day. Yep. But uh, about two years ago, I, I was building a Domino's pizza. And the owner was very nice. He he gave us lunch every single day. And uh, so I'd bring my lunch because I wasn't sure if I was getting lunch every day. And then he'd give us lunch, and I can't say no to a free meal. So Nor I can I. Pizza. Yeah, and I, I gained about 20 pounds over this the three months I couldn't say no to pizza. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, oh, Al! I think we could all relate to that. It's hard to say no to a pizza. That's a great. Point. Well, but
1: by the way, did the reason you brought your you bring your lunch, Al, is be- for economic reasons or because there was nothing in the neighborhood. I, it's just easier.
4: I, um, I eat a, a salad every day for lunch because I got to keep working. If I eat something too heavy, I want to take a nap after lunch.
1: Yeah, me too. I know. And that. Uh,
3: you never know where you're going to be, so you might not be in the right area to get a decent lunch.
1: Well, you know, you're a little... in your case, getting free pizza from the guy whose dominoes you were building is fine because you would have been there otherwise anyway. And so if it's free and good Absolutely. and whatever. So yeah. uh, with you, I am uh, I'm yeah. on board. Al, thanks for the call.
0: Uh, uh, Jack, who keeps a list of all your bans, Jim, yeah. wants to be clear. Is Jim proposing banning free lunch? I, I, a free <laughs> lunch
1: on the premises. If you want to subsidize or pay for the lunch of your worker – off-premises, so that he or she gets a little freedom, gets to patronize a local restaurant, then the answer to that is I am totally on board.
0: Don't you find anything a little odd about a city saying, you know, you can come locate here but we're, going to, we're not going to allow you to have a cafeteria. No, outside. if you're the
1: major employer and you're going to destroy the small businesses, no, there's got to be a balance. Somehow you get to take the good I, with know, the bad. I, I
0: somehow don't think that the, the the restaurants in San Francisco are being destroyed uh, by the fact that- Well, let me businesses. ask
1: you, what's the biggest employer in Seattle? At least I think it is the like biggest. It's Amazon. Amazon. Mm-hmm. So if Jeff Bezos, in addition to locking his employees in, which he apparently does in his warehouse- <laughs> No, only kidding, Jeff, if you're listening today. If Jeff Bezos- Pay, uh, uh, provided a free in house lunch i don 't know if he does actually i I would doubt it, but i don 't know uh, you don 't think that would do serious damage to every single restaurant in the in the neighborhoods well, around I the, think, the tens of I thousands think of the his employees
0: many of the restaurants are probably there before the amazon people Maybe. showed up and, and they, they
1: displace whatever. whatever was there before right I mean by definition I, if you 're the biggest employer
0: how do you know? I've They've... done
1: research on. I was in Seattle actually last summer, and I oh, checked okay. it out. I all right, checked it out.
0: By the way, talk. I was talking about gaining uh, that weight when he was with next to the pizza joint, at the Domino's. Yeah, that was good. Uh, they have a joke about the Facebook 15. Right, because there's such great food that uh, people come to work there. It's like your freshman year in college when you are eating a lot of pizza. People are eating all this food and they get a little chubby uh, on the job.
1: By the way, that I want to get back to. So uh, I'm sort of contradicting myself, but oh. our show is a lunchtime show, so we have to eat lunch in house if you want to eat. It. At all. I, th- that lunch at NPR, that was cafeteria, was, was like not only high quality, but enough to like stuff you to the point where you can't walk, know. which is my criteria. I think they had a you know, buffet section for like too. five bucks. Yeah,
0: it was great. Okay, Alden, you're back. We're going to try again. Hi, hi Alden.
1: Uh, start from yeah, the yeah, beginning hi. again. Hi.
3: Yeah, so um, I've been an entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at oh. Brown. And okay. above, above and beyond just the local restaurant thing, which I completely agree with. It, the the data on the productivity of someone who gets the hell out of the office for even 40 minutes and takes a walk is staggering.
1: Really? Tell us.
3: Yeah. Yeah, do tell uh, us. Well, if, if, if these past few weeks, I, I mean, I, I meet with these students every day. They, they What they want to do is they want to bring their food to the classroom and they want to eat it during like a break, like a 25, 30-minute break in the middle. Oh. And the students who do that, go to sleep in the next half hour. And the students who have been out walking are refreshed. They've gotten their mind off whatever they're supposed to be doing. And, and that's true in the work environment, too. You've got to disengage at some point during the workday. And there's no better way to do it than to leave the building. And uh, And I also agree. I have had a number of students who are at these dot-com Companies who you know give them smorgasbords, um, they still go out. They do it for a while, but then the tendency is, if there's well, any way they can get out of the building during the day for a meeting or something, because it just it just makes them feel better.
1: But Alden, you teach entrepreneurship, and I assume if you know that you have a more productive worker if he or she goes out to eat, then it's likely that the leaders of Google and Facebook do too. So, while they would say if they were candid, the plus is the worker never leaves here, and I, he or she is my captive for X number of hours a day. They would probably know what you know—that there's a downside too. So yep. why do they do it?
3: He, they do. They do. And as a matter of fact, in April I was out in at SpaceX at meeting with Musk, and, and oh really? can he knows that getting people out of the office is good for productivity, but. I can do it with my students. I can crack the weapon, say, close your computers, get out of here. And yeah. Oh, no, I want to work on one more email. Get out, get out, get out, and literally just shoo them out the door. Most employers, most employers don't have that ability. So there's got to be some way to incentivize them to point. get up and move.
0: Yeah,
1: That's great. Olden, that was a great call. Powerful. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry about the problem in the first round. Thank you. 877 uh, 301 Eighty-nine
0: Did you know, seventy. Uh, our our staff just posted something on our screen here that Boston offers healthy free lunches at City Hall all summer for anyone under eighteen, no ID necessary. Meaning, even that. if they
1: don't work at City Hall, anybody under eighteen can. By the way, should they just send us a little sandwich board? Free summer lunches yeah. for youth eighteen or under lunch on the lawn. That's pretty great. That is actually. pretty great.
0: That is pretty great. Let's go to Christina in uh, Medfield. Hi, Christina. Hi. Hi, Chris. How are you? Great. great. My son works at TripAdvisor, and he
8: has free breakfast, free lunch. They have free snacks. But they also have a walking club that they can take any half an hour break during their day. It doesn't have to be on their lunch hour. And they have almost like a Fitbit, and they get paid for walking, for X amount of walking. That's and pretty good. Getting out. Yeah, it's a great, great company. They have a swimming pool. They have a health club wow. that they can go to on the weekends. And you know, work out for for free. It's, well, not free, but it's all part of their package. And um, it's a very nice company. But and it's all good food. My my son actually, he's lost fifteen pounds. He's in a walk the walking club, and they have salmon and um, grilled chicken. It's just amazing. I'm like, I wish back in my day there was that kind of a job to to be had.
0: Where um, is it, Christina? TripAdvisor Trip is in
8: Norwood, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's a great, great company. Yeah. By the
1: way, so. the, I don't want to rain on your parade, but we talked about the guy, Steve Kalfre, I think his name is, who runs TripAdvisor. Do you remember why we talked about him, Marjorie?
0: I got in trouble. For he something. had
1: the largest differ- – no, he had the largest differential between what he made and the median income of oh, that's his- right employees, but I mean, Travel. That, you know, but if your kids help, the only problem for me, Christine, and obviously not for your son, if I got free food at work, I wouldn't be able to walk. So <laughs> That's
8: <laughs> oh me, me either. He showed me a picture of the desserts and all the pastries that are home They're handmade, yeah, they have pastry chefs. It's amazing. Oh my God. Drinks, that uh, you know,
0: just everything. I would be five hundred pounds. <laughs> well
1: so would I right next to you. Christina, thanks for sharing the information. We appreciate it. You know,
0: my older sister for years worked on Wall Street. They used to have a bar in her uh yeah, office.
1: So were they all drunk every day?
0: Well after the market closed they'd all go drinking at the the bar in the office. In the place? In the office. And yeah. obviously
1: what's the point well? I guess. Well, what is the point of that? actually? I have
0: no idea. But oh, they all I think they also. I think the they also have what? an opportunity to invite their clients. How come
1: you're not in- answering my question?
0: If they have, do, they have sex in the office. Well, if they did, she didn't tell me. Can I don't call know. Her before our oh show?
1: We're done. we that Yeah, that's how this we, works. Wow. The show ends every day, too. It's I know, but I was Same just getting warmed up
0: about free food and Jim wanting to ban apologies. it. apologies. Okay, well, thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. We have a podcast on iTunes and the App Store. You can get it for free. If you miss us, you can tune in tomorrow or join us live at the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library for our great Friday All-Stars, Emily Rooney, Callie Crossley, and Shirley Leung. I want to thank our crew Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Teresky, Molly Boygon, Christina Bieni. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. What's on TV, Jim?
1: Well, we're going to talk about what to do the rest of the summer in town. And our guides are going to be Tiffany Faison. As you know, she owns Tiger Mama and Sweet Cheeks. And Christopher Muther, travel writer for the Boston Globe. Do you know who Kim Tavares and Steve McNulty are?
0: I think you just showed me. They
1: are the two cops, Boston cops, between Cop Pool Karaoke, which has gone viral. They're not going to only talk to me. They're going to sing. Tonight, and that's what's made him famous. And we're going to start the show, though. It is reunification day. It should be called non-reunification day. We're going to talk about the mess that has been created and the mess that has not been fixed. On the immigration front, now, I'm going to end the show by talking about something I don't think I've ever talked to you about. My crusade for a four-day work week. Have I ever mentioned that to you? <laughs> oh, have I ever my God. mentioned that to you before? I can't remember. You're
0: beating that baby into the ground until Jim. I get
1: it. I'm going to keep beating that baby into the ground. I'm Jim Browdy. I
0: am Marjorie Egan. Thank you very See much you for tuning in. Please tune again tomorrow uh, or stop by at the Boston Public Library and have a wonderful afternoon.